The podcast Under the Stairs will feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners will find offensive. to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to episode number 30 of the podcast Under the Stairs. I'm your host Duncan McLeish um, and I've got an action-packed show ahead uh, for you guys to listen to. Um, Coming up later on in the show, uh, the final two episodes of the Showtime show A Penny Dreadful will be reviewed. I'll have uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the Baz on to do that with me. But first, I have a very special guest on the podcast. This man last joined me back in Halloween. Um, last year where we did the special Halloween interview section um, talking to all the different horror podcasters Um, I respect this man very much he does one of the hardest things out there which is do a solo podcast I mean my show's technically a solo podcast but not on the level that this man does it he does everything himself I obviously get help in from other podcasters to do reviews uh, he is like a, a walking encyclopedia of all things slasher and is the man responsible for the fact that I no longer refer to a woman's breast as anything other than titty um, <laughs> is of course Johnny Krug from Kruger, uh, Kruger Nation. How are you doing, sir? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. This has been a long time coming. I was thinking that too. You said October, and I was like, "Wow, has it been that long?" Yeah, believe it or not, time has just flown in um, this year, especially. And obviously, I've, I've I've been waiting for the particular set of films to come up that that I think me and you could have a good conversation on um, and the, the stars just aligned this week. It was fantastic. Oh, I think I think you picked two pretty good movies to talk about on here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we, we are going to be discussing um, 2013's Disco Path and 2014's Stage Fright. So um, those reviews will be coming up later on. But Johnny, like I said, you do your own podcast. You've been doing that for, for some time now, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, it's not as prolific as I'd like it to be just because I think I started in 2011 with the audio, mm-hmm. and I th- I'm 50, I think I just recorded my 56th episode on Saturday, so, you know, with, with health and stuff, I've, I've kind of put them out sporadically, but I'm trying to get back into it and uh, put out a new Kruger Nation pretty much every week if, if I can. Yeah, yeah. And then um, before that, you were, you, you had, uh, from what I gather, you had like a YouTube yep, review? Yep, I, I did uh, the Kruger Nation on YouTube, and I was on a, uh, I was on Cinema Corpse, the audio show, and I was on Cadaver Lab after Sam left, mm-hmm. and uh, then I did Cadaver Indies with Mike. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a podcasting whore, I guess. <laughs> There's nothing, <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, speaking, speaking as a, a guy that's involved with three shows now, that's that's you know that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll not go into that. Um, but yeah, so um, would you like to tell the listeners how they can check out your podcast, now they can follow you on the social networks? Oh yeah, if, if you go to uh, KrugerNation.com, you can check out the show on there, and it's also on iTunes. And from what I've heard, I haven't really done a lot of research, I've heard from other people that it's on a lot of the podcatcher apps and stuff. 
Oh, excellent. So um, I, I didn't do that myself, so I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> but that's cool. Hey, if people want to listen on there, that's cool too. Um, but on Twitter and Facebook, I'm Johnny Krug and uh, Johnny Krug at gmail.com. Excellent, excellent. Um, and like I say, as we were just saying off air there, your podcast, um, not not exclusively, but primarily deals with the kind of the more lesser known slasher films, um, which I, I mean, I appreciate because uh, kind of living in the UK when the great boom of slasher films happened, it was right in the middle of what um, was known as the video nasties in my country. So a lot of these films were not shown or impossible to get hold of. And as a result of that, I think through distribution and things, it's very difficult to even get DVD copies of, of some of the films that you discuss. So it's cool from my point of view because like when I tune into your show, um, I hear you talking about and analysing and you know, generally just having fun with films I've never heard about before. And at the end of them, I'm like, I need to somehow track down this movie now. Um, so you are slightly responsible for the, the, the very lightweight of my wallet at the moment. <laughs> I think I'm responsible for a lot of uh, I recommend a lot of movies on the show that most people don't think are very good but movies like Satan's Blade and stuff like that that uh, they are just now getting like an upcoming DVD Blu-ray release mm-hmm. and these are movies I mean came out late 70s early 80s and they've never had a DVD a lot of them I, I've actually had a couple that have never had a VHS release God it's like, what were they on? I mean, I guess you only saw them in theaters. <laughs> yeah. And you've also mentioned, um, I heard it, because like, I'm, I'm trying to catch up with your shows at the moment, but um, you mentioned that you have a particular love for The Prowler, which is a film I only saw for the first time, I think it was about three years ago, and completely fell in love with that movie. I think... Um, I, to me, I don't understand why when people are talking about you know the like the rise of the slasher movie, etc., or the new wave of slashers in the eighties and things, um, why that isn't one that's readily at the top of people's lists, you know, near the top. That one it gets grazed over a lot. Like I've heard a lot of people that you know they they start talking about all the the big eighty one, eighty two slashers, and they just just breeze right over the Prowler. Yeah, it's a strange one that I, I don't understand that because to me that ticks a lot of boxes it's you know it's an early 80s film so you know it has it has in hindsight it has a couple of things which we look back on maybe now and can say oh maybe that's not the, the best thing there but it's, it's a it's a fuck ton of enjoyment oh um, yeah yeah so it's, it's a great movie um so uh what i like to ask all my guests at the start of the show is in the last week or so have you have you checked out anything worth mentioning um, in the realms of horror or anything which you've you've thought, you know, this this wasn't very good? Well, I don't know about... Um, trying to think of uh, if I've watched anything bad. I know I just checked out Deliver Us From Evil in the theatre. Oh, right, that's the Scott Derrickson um, thing, isn't it? The guy that did Sinister. Yeah, yeah, uh, he did that, and he did, I think, um, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Emily Rose, that's right, yeah. And uh, it, it stars Eric Bana and... I, I honestly I liked it. I didn't think it was. I mean, it was it was certainly enjoyable, but I, I didn't feel. You know, when you see movies like Emily Rose and you see stuff like Sinister, there's always that kind of kicker at the end. Yeah, yeah. The thing with Delivers from Evil is, I mean, and it's not spoiling anything to say this is it's a completely straightforward like possession tale. There's there's nothing that that they're hiding from you at all. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that that was one thing that kind of caught me off guard. But I think if I had gone into it knowing that, I would have liked it even more. Yeah, I I mean, um, that one, um, like, quite quite a bit of story behind that. Because, obviously, um, originally that film was set to come out in January next year. Oh wow! Um, which you, you well, you, you like myself will know what what that means generally for film a horror film. It's the film graveyard. <laughs> yeah, um, but because uh, the Conjuring had done so well uh, last year, and because it was uh, released about now actually um, last year, and it did you know incredibly well. It did did what no horror film does about this time of year, which is you know kind of dominate the box office sony actually brought that film forward to roughly the same you know the same date release um because they they felt that it would do quite well and um i i from what i gather i mean it's based on it's based well i hate using this term it's based (laughs) on real case files i think from an nypd cop if that's right, I'm not sure. I'm sure I read somewhere that it's kind of based around that, and because the trailer shows it as being a very kind of twisted and sinister sort of possession movie, the the main reviews that I've heard coming out is exactly what you said. It's more kind of straightforward, kind of investigating something which isn't quite right sort of film. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But but the thing is, I mean, I I, I feel like when I say that, like I'm taken away from it. But I, it's really, I mean, it, it is a decent movie. It, it mm-hmm. has really good visuals like it's shot incredibly well i mean some real spooky stuff in it but um and i guess you know when you think about something that's supposedly based on a true story that you can't really go too far off and uh you know they couldn't have a crazy twist at the end yeah because you know if it's if it's supposed to be based in reality yeah that's it i mean um that was uh that was one of I mean, I enjoyed The Conjuring, but from from that point, if you haven't done a bit of reading and stuff like that, and the the kind of background of it, you know, they they obviously embellish quite a lot in that movie. Um, that <laughs> it's like you see this as one of these things as horror fans when those words come up on a screen or when you read it somewhere, you you kind of let a bit of a groan, you know, based on a true story. Oh, right, I'm sure it is. Um, but no, no, it's, it's a film I'll be checking out next week. Actually, I think it's just. It gets released here this weekend, so um, I'm still going to go and check it out anyway. I, I quite, I quite liked Sinister. I didn't think it was a, an amazing film, but I thought it was alright. And the Exorcism of Emily Rose is a film that I have quite a lot of time for. I think it's, I think it's one of the better sort of possession movies um, of of recent times, anyway. So I, I shall be checking that out. Anything else, or is that the the big one? No, I that that's. I mean, I I, I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, you are currently on your show. You're going through the Friday the Thirteenth retro at the moment. Oh yeah, and in fact, we were talking about the Prowler. Joseph Zito did Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, which I just talked about. Is that your new show? Because I still hear that one. It is. That's the one I just released on Saturday, and that's as far as those films go. I mean, you can tell the production value and everything in Part Four is just through the roof. Like that, that movie is beautiful looking. Mm, I, I've got. That's I, I, one of the ones that I hold quite near and dear, as as part four. I really enjoy that movie, so I look forward to checking that out. Um, on my side, uh, I'm trying to think what I've seen recently. Um, since the last time I recorded, uh, I have my list somewhere. Um, well, obviously the two films we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, I finally got around to checking out my. 
I bought the Arrow Video Steelbook of the 70s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which looks beautiful on Blu-ray. It's... Oh, it looks so much better than what it should look like, <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, I checked out Blue Ruin, which is a kind of indie revenge sort of flick, which was actually really good. Um, it wasn't... I mean, it got quite a lot of praise... Um, and awards and things like that that um, I, I don't necessarily think it, it lived up fully to that but as revenge films go I quite like the simplicity of it um, that that I would probably I would recommend people check that one out anyway and um, I really want to see I, that one pretty bad yeah it's, it, I mean the thing about it is um, I don't recognise any of the cast at all um, and the guy that kind of leads that film, the the main actor in it, whose name escapes me at the moment, is has incredible weight about his performance. You know, he he, he acts incredibly well, and you he can emote so much just through his eyes. He's got like a sadness in his eyes for most of the film, um, which I think just is very captivating. I think his performance especially is one that's is worth checking out. Um, did the, you ever see? Did you see Murder so, Party? I have not seen Murder Party, no. That's actually their first film, and um, I was super impressed because they say they, they shot Murder Party for, like, no money, and I don't know what the actual number is, but that movie, it's a really good horror comedy, like, real dark comedy, but the main guy from Murder Party is actually the main guy in Blue Ruin. And, oh, uh, right. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, and um, what I had heard was when I was seeing all the praise for it was people were so shocked that they put out this, like, kind of schlocky dark horror comedy and then when this one came out that it, it was so like, they say i guess that they've grown so so much as filmmakers mm-hmm. like just between one film yeah i mean i, I well i i i didn't know too much about it at all um from watching the film i i would have thought these guys were quite a bit into their career uh just just from the maturity of it um and they handle it it's a very it's a captivating watch. It's not particularly long. It's about an, maybe about an hour and a half, an hour and forty minutes, um, and it flew in. The time flew in on that movie. That you know when when I could see where things were going towards the end, I was like, I can't believe that's the end of the movie already. So uh, yeah, it's it, it's a it, it's a recommend. A definite recommend for me. The other movie I checked out, um, and I thought it was alright. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go too high in this one, is uh, Blood Widow. I don't know if you've checked that out yet. No, I haven't heard of that. Um, it's a kind of indie slasher movie. Um, and I, I won't go into too much details about it. Um, I think it, it must it must be on VOD in the States just now. Because um, I got a screener copy of it. Um, it's it's alright. I, I think it shows its budget though. Um, and I think in some respects that that kind of uh, works in its favour, but also works against it. Um, so I mean, keep keep your eyes open for that one. Uh, if it if it appears on the the Netflix or anything like that over in the states, I, I'd be quite interested to get your point of view on it. Actually, I think you'd uh, there, there's things in it that are quite interesting. It's a slasher movie, so um, it's worth checking out. You give it like a slight slight recommend. Yeah, aye. It's, there's there's interesting things in it. I don't necessarily think the overall film 
works really well, but I think it's worth checking out for, purely on the basis that there are things in it which I think are quite interesting. There's certain things to do within the kind of slasher works which are not wholly original, but things you you just don't generally see in movies at the moment. So whilst it's maybe not like a like a strong recommend like you were saying, I think there's elements in it that are worth checking it out for. I like that. Like I I'm I'm interested in checking it out. Yeah, definitely. So um, what we're going to do just now is we're going to take a very short break. When we return, um, I've got two news stories. Um, one about an upcoming film release, which I'm quite excited about. Um, another one is another list from Shock Till You Drop, which uh, which um, will be interesting to discuss. Um, so we're going to take a very short break. You're going to hear some promos and stuff, and we will be right back after this. The news. And welcome back, and it's time to discuss some news. So the first story up um, is of particular interest to me. It'll be interesting to hear Johnny's uh, views on this as well. Um, one of my favourite films a couple of years ago was Excision. Um, I thought it was a. I thought after seeing that movie, you know, this guy's going to go off. The, the director's going to go off and do huge things, and you know this film's going to propel him. And then we never really heard anything about him at all. Um, so Richard Bates, that's the the director, has apparently been off working on his next project, which is called Suburban Gothic. And the trailer dropped this week um, on Shock Till You Drop. It says uh, in the article, Richard Bates made a big moody mess on the genre scene with Excision. He's been away for far too long, but he's now back with Suburban Gothic, a film that is premium premiering at the Fantasia Film Festival this month in Montreal. Bates has, once again, pulled in an eclectic cast that includes Matthew Gray Grubler, Kat Denning, Ray Wise, Barbara Niven, Sally Kirkland, Jeffrey Combs, John Waters and Muse Watson. Uh, Grubler plays Raymond, a young man who has a prestigious MBA but can't find work. He can channel the paranormal, but chatting with a cute girl mystifies him. Kicked out of his big city apartment, Raymond returns home to his overbearing mother, ex-jock father and beer-bellied classmates. But when a vengeful ghost terrorises the small town, the city boy recruits Becca, a badass local bartender, to solve the mystery of a spirit threatening everyone's lives. So, um, I checked out the trailer for this one. I sent it across to you, Johnny. You check it out? Oh, absolutely, man. And I had no idea, because I had seen that this dropped earlier this week. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I didn't know it was from the guy who did Excision. Oh, right. Until I watched the trailer, and this it looks like a completely different kind of movie. It does, yeah. <laughs> But it looks fun. It looks like it has a budget. It looks like it, it may. I think it'll hit theaters. Oh, fingers crossed! I, I, genu- I genuinely think um, very much like you. Um, I don't know. I, I remember hearing it was possibly on a podcast actually. Um, the end of last year, that the guy behind Excision had a film called Suburban Gothic, and from that name, I just assumed that it was going to be a lot darker in tone than what it what the trailer certainly makes out to be it has a very 80s quality about it 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 seems like yeah like a like a really fun movie it almost it gave me like almost like a uh, rated r beetlejuice vibe yeah yeah i can totally see that i it it has um there's it has a, a certain quirk about it that you don't necessarily see 
um, in in our genre at the moment, um, and especially coming off the back of Excision. I mean, and maybe from his point of view as a director, he's made his his very serious, kind of dark, moody sort of movie and this is I'm going off to tackle something else but it's like you say the production quality on it looks really good the lighting alone looks really interesting um, and I mean I didn't see I, I'm trying to remember if I saw Jeffrey Combs in the trailer now I didn't see him I remember John Waters at the very end yeah yeah um, but the, the fact that he's managed to get Jeffrey Combs in is another massive tick from me um, so yeah this this looks really interesting what, did, you, did you like Excision at all? I did. I, I liked it, and that was another movie that was kind of like um, the movie we'll be talking about later, Stage Fright. I went into it, and all I had heard was bad things about it. Yeah. And uh, I I got Excision really cheap on Blu-ray for like five bucks or something, and I ended up really digging it. I thought it was it was weird. It was it was different in tone, but um, I, I think I, I liked what he was going for, and uh, the downbeat ending. You don't get that a lot. You don't, that's right. I think it does it really well. I think, it, in fact, one of the better ones in, in recent memory. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's that's certainly one that we'll, we'll both need to keep our eyes out on. And uh, I dare say it's likely to hit America before it'll hit the UK. So if you get a chance to check it out, Johnny, you need to come back and let us know what you thought of it. Oh, absolutely. Based on the fact that they have Kat Dennings and uh, the main guy from Criminal Intent or whatever that show is, mm-hmm. or Criminal Minds, I think, um, and they have people like John Waters. I, I could see this movie going to theaters. I think it's got enough star power. Yeah, I would hope so. I, I definitely hope so. I mean, it, it, those sort of films, even if it gets a... It might get like a limited theatrical run over in the UK, but I live close enough to plenty of independent cinemas that I should be able to track it down when it comes over. So, yeah, that, that, this is one to, to, to put in your diaries anyway, folks, and uh, keep your eyes open for it. Um, so, the the last story was that Shock Till You Drop had uh, produced a list, which kind of fits in with where my show is going to be going in the next the next 10 weeks after this episode. Um, I'm going to be examining in my opinion, the top uh, 10 best and worst horror remakes. Um, and I, I dare say you might end up back on one of those shows, Johnny, actually. I was um, just going to ask you if I could. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Because um, I, there's going to be so much to discuss. The, 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 the only penance in that show is that every show will have a bad horror remake. Um, and a good one. I suppose the silver lining is it'll have a good one. So um, they've announced their... their they've created an article uh, which basically says ah remakes the mere mention of the word often sends horror fans running for the hills as there is nothing we quite hate as much as our favorite classics being messed with well there's nothing most of us hate quite like that at least Uh, the fact of the matter is that there are just as many good remakes as there are bad ones the same way as there's just as many bad original horror movies as there are good original ones which um the recent roundtable discussion that i did pretty much covered most of this what they have um done is they have created a list of what they consider the top 10 from the last 10 years so we'll go through them and uh we'll see if we agree or disagree johnny um with their list so if we're you know seeing, what's funny yep. is in in the last ten years, it, when you go back and you just type that into Google, there there have been so many. <laughs> it's, it's it really has. It has. I, I think. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember when I heard that they were doing uh, Texas Chainsaw the remake, 
and I remember thinking, this is that it felt strange that that movie was being remade, and um, that that obviously did quite a bit better than they were expecting it to do, and then in the space of like very kind of similar to the slasher movies actually, you know when when things like Halloween and you know hit off, or even even Friday the Thirteenth, and then cinema for the next you know horror cinema for the next like four five years were just bombarded with a you know a, a deluge of titles um it kind of it's kind of went the same way with remakes where i think some of them are obvious remakes um like there's no surprise to me that they remade nightmare on elm street or friday the 13th but the, this first one on their list was was one that was a shock to me um, and that I, I kind of was stumped as to why they were giving it the remake treatment. So number one on their list is Maniac, which was my movie of the year last year. I actually loved this movie. Did you get a chance to check that out? I did. And, and Maniac, uh, the remake, was a movie that I went into. I talked to actual. I talked to Caroline Monroe the day before I saw it. Did you? Yeah, I met her and was talking to her. There was nobody at her booth and we just chatted a little bit about, um, you know, about... Uh, what's his name joe spinel and, yeah and everything and and she she seemed pretty disappointed that they were remaking it and i expressed you know i was like oh I'm, I'm pretty disappointed too and so the next day when i saw the movie and i was blown away by it i felt so bad because i was like i went into it not wanting to like it and i, I ended up lo- fucking loving it yeah I, I think that's the thing though i think um like Ed, like like the article hits that um i mean i think because because the the first one, especially that original, um, is one of those films which is I is iconic. Especially if you if you if you like films of that decade, um, Maniac is such a strange, strange film um, that when it's announced that they're remaking it and they're changing the location from New York to to LA and they're going to have Elijah Wood in it, and I, I remember hearing that and thinking. No, Elijah Wood's not the guy to play this role, and then actually seeing it, and I also heard about the POV thing well in advance, and I was like, "Here come the gimmicks." Um, <laughs> but I yeah, but I watched that movie, and I was uh, everything about it to me is just right. Um, the soundtrack's amazing, the the acting's amazing, the way it's shot is it's like visual eye candy. Um, I absolutely, and it was one of those ones that, like, like you were saying, I, I was completely pessimistic about it until I got my until my bum was on the seat watching it, and then I was just like, "This is fucking awesome." It 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 was strange how they did everything right. Like they they did with the remake, like they completely remade it. They didn't just take the idea and do something different. Like they took the idea and they they made something unique. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I think. Moving forward, um, I think that was the film to me that when, when I watched it, I thought, you know, I need to stop being so judgmental about remakes. It will still always happen with certain titles get mentioned, my, my eyes will roll in the back of my head, but um, for the most part, that gave me a bit more confidence that there are filmmakers out there that, you know, given the opportunity to put their stamp on something can create things that are really cool. Um, the, the next one on the list is maybe more kind of back to basics than than anything which was the evil dead remake which was also on my top 10 list last year um purely because i think it delivered more blood in a movie than any film last year (laughs) it is incredibly bloody um and as remakes go actually 
one of the more enjoyable horror films. I think between that and your next were like my two kind of favourite in terms of enjoyment. You know, sit down just popcorn munching through watching a film experiences I had last year. Are you a fan of the remake? You know, honestly, I wasn't a huge fan of it. I didn't dislike it, but mm-hmm. it for me, it kind of committed a crime, not as far as remakes go, but just movies in general. It was that I, I didn't find myself... Um, like, I, felt, I found myself kind of give or take with it. Like, when I left the theater, I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. I was kind of in, in the, the middle. middle. Yeah. And it wasn't because it was a remake or anything. I actually, um, I think that they did a fairly good job with all the effects and everything. And and I thought that the, the story was told pretty well. But I don't know. I, I just, it didn't move me one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, well, speaking as people that, you know, watch a lot of movies, that those are the ones that, I mean, you'd much rather finish a film and be happy and excited about it or you know kind of ticked off and all the rest but to be left in the middle is not a not a great thing <laughs> really um, that, that's yeah. the thing is i i found the the steel steelbook blu-ray of it for really cheap and i was like i want to buy it but i just don't see myself really watching it again yeah yeah i, I know i know what you mean um number number three in this one is one that I'm not a big fan of actually, um, which was the Hills of Eyes remake. Um, I thought some of it was alright. I just, I I have a real love for the the Craven, the original Craven movie. Um, that whilst I kind of see where they were going, I just don't necessarily think it. It didn't really add anything or change anything. It, it just seemed like people were. You know, we need to make a movie which kind of fits in with this whole wrong turn sort of thing that's happening just now. And, you know, instead of coming up with something which is maybe original, we have a story we could use in The Hills Have Eyes. Um, what was your take on that movie? I, when I first saw it, I wasn't really moved with it. Um, later when I saw it on DVD, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. But I think it was just, like, not for the story or anything. I... I I think I appreciated the, uh, like you said with Evil Dead, I appreciated the uh, the gore effects and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But I will say this, though. I, I, I always prefer the original and the uh, original sequel because I didn't like the sequel to the remake. Oh, right. I've never I've never actually even, even seen that at all. It, it takes the, uh, the gore to another level to where it's just almost uh, trying to be gross for, for gross sake. Oh, right, yeah. That's, nah, no, that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking about gory films, uh, Piranha 3D, what did you think of that? Oh, man, I've I've made many people mad about that one. I, I, I didn't like it. Oh, well, no, I, you're, you're in good company then. Oh, uh, good. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I d- really didn't. I, I remember seeing that movie Drunk. Um and walking out thinking it was the best thing I'd ever seen in my entire <laughs> life and telling everyone, you know, if there is one movie you see in the cinema this month, it's Piranha 3D. And then I caught it um when it came out on DVD. I, I, I bought it then and obviously not seeing it in 3D, not having that effect, but I watched it back and I actually was slightly humiliated that I'd... because I'd, it's, a, it's a silly movie. And not silly as in, oh, it's a silly movie, yeah. I just think it's stupid. Um, like really, really, what was your gripes with it? Well, that was my biggest problem with it was that it was silly, but it, like there were certain parts where they tried to be super serious. So I don't think they got the tone right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Be- what? Because at the end of the movie, when they're trying to save everybody and stuff, like her son, 
it, it takes this completely serious tone, but you know, five minutes before this, you saw Jerry O'Connell's severed dick floating in the water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 3D. Yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you need to. Yeah, uh, if you're going to do that sort of thing, the film needs needs to earn it, and I don't think that film earns it um, <laughs> at all. Uh, what one that I think did get the right balance. Um, uh, is the number five on the list, which is the Dawn of the Dead remake, which um, I remember seeing at the cinema. Um, it came out not long after uh, Twenty Eight Days Later, which um, kind of shook up the 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 zombie genre by introducing something very very simple as zombies that could run, um, and then I, I love Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead is like one of my of that sort of genre, it's one of my favourites. It's like easily in the top three zombie films, in my opinion, of all time. And then to hear that they were remaking it, and then to hear who was who was doing the remake, Zack Snyder, who I don't have a a particular love for, um, but going to see that movie in the cinema and genuinely jumping at my seat in certain bits and um, really just finding it quite a captivating kind of version of it. Um, it's one it's one of my favourites actually of the kind of the bulk of the last ten years. What about yourself? You? I lo- I loved it. I I thought it was a lot of fun. They added like they took the idea of the mall and stuff, but they did so much more with it. I mean, and and I still like I like you. I love the original, but they did so much different that I thought if you're gonna remake it, that's that's the right way to go. Yeah, like, definitely. It was a lot of fun. I mean, all the characters were were pretty likable and stuff, and there was just I think adding more characters helped too. I think so as well. Actually, I th- I thought that that was one of the from from my point of view. I I I just enjoyed that. I think I think like you say, they add they add certain things, and I found myself sympathising and actually caring about some of the characters, which and you, you know once again is a, a common trait with modern horror films is that they don't always necessarily get that balance right. But I think they did it really well on that one. Um, number six uh, is one that <laughs> I can't get behind. Um, because I, I just don't like it and um I've, I've I've there are elements in it that I do quite like. I think the first ten minutes of the Friday the thirteenth remake are really cool. Um I just think the film after that doesn't necessarily do what I want it to do. Um and it, and to me it gets pretty dumb in places. I know I shouldn't be saying that because there <laughs> are there are towards the end of the, the Friday the thirteenth I mean the 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 argument was recently Put to me by I was doing an interview with uh, Nate Milner, um, the the guy that designs the Scream Factory Blu-ray artwork, oh, and cool. he yeah he he basically said he was he was like that. There's a lot of horror fans that just jump out there and say, you know, oh this film's you know it's so silly and you know I, I, we forget how silly the originals are or how bad the sequels were and things like that. I just I wasn't a big fan. Did you? What, what's your opinions of the the Friday the Thirteenth remake? I liked the Friday Thirteenth remake, but there are. It's one of those movies that I'm half and half on because I really liked the the whole story with Jared Padalecki mm-hmm. and trying to find his sister, and I liked Jason, them kind of showing how he survived and stuff. But the teenagers were not in any way likable. Yeah, and that yeah. was one of my biggest gripes was they didn't have to make everybody an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, yeah. and so so that's why I'm split on it because like I enjoy a lot. I, the kills were cool in it. I enjoy a lot of the the stuff, but I mean, I think if they casted or written the characters different, even I think maybe it would have been more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving moving on to the next one is Mother's Day. Now I I only saw this movie. I think it was about la- I think possibly last year. Um, and I think this one's really good. In fact, this is one that I'm surprised doesn't make a lot of lists. Although it isn't exactly a like a remake per se. They changed quite a lot of it. Um, have you checked it Mother's Day? No, I haven't seen the remake. I've only seen the original, which is really campy. Yeah, it's, it's trauma as well. So um, the I, I you should I think you should if you get a chance check that one out and come back to me on that one because I think tonally they changed quite a lot of it and I think it's quite an interesting remake. I've heard Rebecca De Mornay is awesome in it. Phenomenal in it, actually one one of the one of the best performances that I think she's she's done. Um, the the next one, uh, Last House on the Left. I don't particularly like this one. I think there are some elements which are really cool in it. Um, and don't get me started on the ending with a microwave. Um, <laughs> which you know I just I don't I don't understand how someone let that let that remain in the movie. Um, what, what, what what's your opinions? Did you, have you checked this one out? Yes, um, I absolutely did not like it. The only thing I, I could give the movie was that it was shot beautifully. Like it, it, it was a cinema, It was really like a cinematic masterpiece to look at. Yeah, yeah. But um, one of the biggest complaints I had with the movie was the fact that nobody died. Like the the their daughter didn't die, and yeah. they had the whole backstory of the brother dying, and it was just too much drama added to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So now, overall, I, I w- walked away from it just not liking it. Yeah, and um, the next one apparently is a tie, which I think is a bit of a cop out. Shot till you drop. Um, between uh, House of Wax and My Bloody Valentine, and um, I saw both of these remakes in the cinema, and I actually have quite a lot of time for both uh, for for different reasons. I quite like how mean spirited House of Wax is, um, and I know that's one that that annoys a lot of people. And a lot of people seem to take a, a a degree of hatred towards it because Paris Hilton's in it, and yeah, <laughs> I I I don't necessarily like that woman, but and she's not she's not an actress, but she dies in a pretty gruesome way. So I mean, people that don't like her should be rejoicing that. Um, and my bloody Valentine, I saw it when it came out, opening night when it came out in the cinema, and I had never seen the original. Um, so that was my first from seeing that movie it made me go and check out the original and um, I quite liked it <laughs> if I'm being honest <laughs> uh, what's your opinion House of Wax and My Bloody Valentine House of Wax when I first saw it when it was in theatres I didn't care for it as much because I went into it thinking like you know I was really big into the Vincent Price one mm-hmm. but then I went back and watched it because I realised it wasn't in any way the same movie except for in title yeah so um, when I saw it again and I just kind of let that, you know, left that out of my mind, I, I really liked it. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of good effects in it. Um, like you said, it's mean-spirited. A lot of the kills and stuff are just pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as My Bloody Valentine 3D goes, that was one that I, I – it was kind of like um, Evil Dead with me, like where I left the theater and I was kind of like – it didn't move me one way or the other. I. I think the only complaint I had about it was that um, the love triangle was just a little too dramatic. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I kind of felt like we were spending too much time focusing on that and not enough time focusing on how awesome Tom Atkins is. 
Yeah, yeah, and he wasn't in it as much as I'd liked him to have been. Yeah, I, I kind of, like, when I remember hearing his name was attached to it, I was like, oh my god, yes, yes. And then when they got rid of his character, in a really cool way, actually, um, but when they when they took care of him pretty early on in the film, I did kind of feel like a, oh, <laughs> getting <kinda laughs> slumped, slumped in my cinema seat a wee bit and just thought, yeah, um why have you done this? You've just killed one of the awesome parts of your movie off quite early. Um, it's been a long time, but um, does he get his jaw ripped off? He gets a... Oh, man, he, he puts a... Yeah, they, they use the pickaxe up through his jaw, and it comes through, and then it pulls it off, uh, which is a particularly gruesome kill. Um <laughs> I, but really cool. I mean, uh, if you're going to go out, that's a good way to go out, I suppose. Um, and a horror film like that, not just in general, not in real life. Um, but, uh, uh, the last one um, is one that made my top ten list as well last year. Um, and it's by a director who I think is one of the the more interesting American directors of recent time. Although now I'm saying that, I think he's Canadian. Um <laughs> it, is, it is the remake of We Are What We Are. Um, oh, I, I have not seen that. Oh, and I, I am a big fan of Jim Mickle. Um, on a previous podcast uh, with Jamie Jenkins, we did the the, the Jim Mickle back catalogue of films. Um, and I mean, I think Stakeland, I remember seeing Stakeland at a festival and being absolutely blown away by how beautiful the film looked. Um, above, you know, obviously all the gore and gruesome things that happen in it. That this film seemed like an interesting like move for him, you know, because it's the the original is is very dark and very sombre. Um, and Jim Mickle taking on this project, I didn't know how he would handle it. Um, apart from a slight issue that I have with the ending, and it's only a slight issue, I think this film is fucking excellent. I think it's moody, dark, um, and I think all the performances are fantastic as well. Uh, I think, once again, if you get a chance to check that one out, I'd be interested to hear your opinions on it, Johnny. I, I've actually never seen the original either. Is it a French film? or? Um, it's South American. Oh, wow. That's my way um, off. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember who. Ah, uh, it's, it's South American. I, I can't remember what country. I want to say Argentinian, but I'm not entirely sure if it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's worth checking out. I think um, they they flip it on its head because um, the the original it's uh, taken from the the family have two young sons, and the father dies. But in the remake, they flip it round so he has two daughters and the mother dies. Um, and it, it kind of discusses... It kind of touches on quite a lot. It's actually, when I think about it, the narrative's quite dense in that it's covering um, traditions, uh, kind of growing up through teenage years and how you view your family and how you view the world around you, peer pressure and all these sort of things, as well as cannibalism, which is... <laughs> Just throw that in everybody's the mix. adolescence. <laughs> of course. Uh, but that's the end of our news stories. We're going to take a very short break. When I return, I'm joined by The Baz. We're going to discuss the last two episodes in the Showtime show, A Penny Dreadful. Uh, looking forward to wrapping that show out. When we come back from that, uh, Johnny will be back with me and we are going to be doing our first movie review, which is a review of 2013's Disco Path. So we will be right back after this break. <laughs> Hey kids, do you like horror movies? 
Do you like podcasts? Do you like people called Gil and Roscoe? If you do, you're going to love Gil Gil and and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast! Every week, you'll join your hosts, Gil and Roscoe, who'll discuss a range of topics, including juice drinks, alcoholic drinks, lollipops, bobby socks, Robocop, uncomfortable chairs, Comfortable chairs. It seems absolutely nothing like our podcast. Um, well, it, it should be a representation of our podcast, so we should start off with a pure cheesy intro and then just uh-huh. be like, actually, no, that, that sounds way too upbeat for us. Yeah. <laughs> we could have some dead classy music in the background and people would think we're really high class gentlemen. We are high class gentlemen. That's just not what our podcast sounds like. Right. So that's Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Look for us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Who can tell about such things? Such hidden things? Such secrets we all have, don't we? Doctor. She is being controlled by the power beyond our understanding. You have no idea how I fight this thing. What thing? This thing inside me. You'll be very tired between life and death itself. You must be close to Nina. Reach out. Find her. How cruel you are. I'm not sure Sir Malcolm is being honest. Whatever game you think you're playing, I've had enough. We need to end this right now. That creature will unleash untold horrors. Please, I beg you, do it. Uh, welcome back. You've just heard the trailer for episode number seven of the Showtime show, A Penny Dreadful. Um, before we get into details, I'd like to welcome... My my co-host constantly when we're doing these shows is of course the Baz, the man, the myth, the legend, the Baz. We're just going to start doing it like James Bond now, Baz. How you doing? Yeah, <laughs> I'm struggling to live up with that intro, mate. Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm doing fine, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great at the moment. Uh, obviously, Johnny's having a, a a short break just now before we. Before we start tackling our two main features for tonight's episode, right, but you'll be, um, be getting boozed up to fucking the toilet. <laughs> I pray, it's pretty a wild much. man. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I know it's not been that long since I spoke to you. We, Indeed, we've, we've not long done our, our penny dreadful episodes to catch up with. Yeah, but uh, have you been checking out anything in the realms of horror? Um, in the realms of horror. Uh, I think I, I watched Saw, the first Saw. Have we spoken about that before? Uh, I don't think we have on no, this show. I don't, no, I don't no. think we have. I know I didn't mention it to you. But yeah, I basically sat down and watched the first Saw movie. I get, now, I had I'd seen that um, at the cinema, I think, when it came out. Um, or certainly way back around about that kind of time. Um, but I've been kind of interested to watch some of the other ones. I remember quite enjoying that film at the time even mm-hmm. though I didn't really have much of an interest in horror. Um, and it was the kind of, the start of this whole kind of torture porny type kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, although I didn't realise that's what it was at the time. Um, and there's quite a lot of them on Netflix and stuff like that now, and I've been meaning to kind of catch up with them, and I thought, you know what, I should really watch the first one and get my head back in what it's all about and who the characters are and so on. So yeah, it happened to come on Sky the other week there, and I taped that, and I sat down and watched that. And, uh, yeah, enjoyed it just as much this time. I, I remember the, the the big twist at the end, which I won't I won't give away for anybody that's maybe not seen it that's listening in, but basically the, the big kind of twist at the end, 
I remembered within about the first two minutes. Yeah. Um, that kind of clicked in my head, and I thought, oh, God, that's what happens at the end. But to be fair, it didn't distract from the film at all. Um, there was a lot of stuff in it I couldn't remember. Um, and in particular, the, there's a brilliant scene with the, the photographer character, not the surgeon guy, the photographer one, when you see him basically getting taken, like captured before he ends up in the room. Um, and he's going through his house in the pitch black just firing his uh, his camera's flash intermittently mm. to uh, to light the room to see because he knows there's somebody in the flat with him kind of thing you know oh my god I was shitting myself <laughs> and you know what's coming you've already seen the kind of outfit that the killer is wearing you know I mean you know he's in the fucking house and you know one of these flashes is going to be right fucking there and oh what a fucking way to build suspense though the sound of the flash you know like warming up and everything mm-hmm. <clears throat> brilliantly shot fucking seen that absolutely brilliantly done for building suspense and that i think you would struggle to see a better scene to be honest i was fucking bricking it <laughs> 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 but, uh, but yeah all in all i i enjoyed it and i'm quite looking forward to seeing some of the others now i know you say they can be a bit hit and miss and it does shoot itself in the foot at points. But I'm kind of keen to watch the whole lot of them and see where it does go, you know? Ah, and definitely you should uh, you should keep us abreast of how you're getting on with them as you work through them on future shows. I certainly will. So, me and you uh, have finished Penny Dreadful. We have indeed. Um, the end of an era until next year. Yep. Um, and uh, I'm quite looking forward to uh, chatting about some of these episodes, uh, these final two. So um, what we'll do is, f- just to mix things up and confuse our listeners, I'll start us off. Okay. So I'll talk about episode number seven, um, which was aptly named Possession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for obvious reasons, because uh, the synopsis, which is very long-winded on here again, but I'm going to try and condense it, is uh, Vanessa starts having unnatural fits and mentions that she's trying to fight the thing inside her. Malcolm tells Ethan that she might be possessed by the devil or a devil um, that wants to keep her alive. Meanwhile, Vanessa talks to the entity possessing her, um, which reveals that it wants her to be the mother of evil. Meanwhile, uh, Victor asks Ethan to teach him how to shoot, and we get a glimpse at the manservant's past, and Malcolm's true intentions are finally shown. So, um, yeah, primarily the majority of this episode um, is dealing with the aftermath of what happened in episode 6, where Vanessa slept with uh, Dorian Gray's character, mm-hmm. and whilst they were mid mid the Mid-co- throes of pa- mid-coitus. <laughs> yeah, um, she started uh, becoming a bit more sinister, and we could clearly tell that things weren't quite right there, and obviously this, this uh, tied into a previous encounter she'd had with Mina's ex, um, where something similar happened. So basically, it would appear that whenever she's in the midst of passion, the throes of passion, Baz, um, this demon seems to take control. That is just the mother of all cock blocks, isn't it? Pretty much. Do you know what much. I mean? You're just at the fucking tickly bit and in swan Satan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And the fucking eyes start rolling back and brimstone starts coming out of vag. Fucking there's, just there's, terrible. 
there's a, but I, I think this is I think this is one of the things I've been I've been giving this show quite a bit of thought and obviously reading up a couple of things online and things. I think this is actually quite clever because if you think of how sex was uh, viewed in Victorian times, mm-hmm. and then you have this very sexually liberated woman, and because she's sexually liberated, that means that she's possessed by a demon. So, yeah. You know I mean? oh and, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of these things actually, which uh, you know, and we'll come to, when we come to the end of the show. There are a couple of things, and I, I've been doing, like I say, a bit of reading up on it. And when you when you do a bit of reading up on it, this is this is where some of these things. I think the shows we've we've always said it's not particularly just a face value show. There are things working in the background, but the the more I was reading it, the more I was like, and obviously it's people's interpretations. But um, yeah, primarily this episode dealt with the Vanessa possession and um, uh, Sir Malcolm's reluctance to get a priest in to perform an exorcism. Um, he seemed to be pretty much of the opinion that, you know, they could wait this out and Vanessa would be able to battle through it. Well, at least that's what you think at the start, is that, you know, he's he's completely with Vanessa and he's sticking by her. As the episode progresses and Vanessa gets weaker and weaker, we start to find out that Malcolm has a completely selfish agenda at part. And he basically wants Vanessa to be as close to death's door as possible. Um, so that this connection with Mina, which she's had previously, will kick back in, um, and you know he he's ba- he basically is kind of he's standing back and letting Vanessa die in order to get this information, which he wants for selfish reasons. Obviously, it's his daughter to get there. We we uh, had a martyrs there. I thought there is actually and, uh, you know push them right to the brink of death kind of thing, and they'll be yep. able to see yeah. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, meanwhile, uh, Victor is still being stalked by a very angry monster who <laughs> is just outside the fucking window every time he turns around. Um, we have we have his monster outside, uh, kind of looking at him as if to say, are we going to hurry up with this Bride of Frankenstein? Um, I just love you describing it as an angry monster. Oh, you, you prick! Hurry up! I'm fucking raging! <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Um, so um, we've got another couple of things kicking off here, though. Um, there's a couple of conversations which are quite interesting. Um, Chandler gives a bit more of his backstory and mentions that what happened in his home country in America is that Indian children were taken and they were brought up as you know as Americans you know, so to speak, in that they were taught language, sent to school and all the rest, and domesticated. Christians and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and basically when, you know, if these people ever made it back to their tribes, they, they couldn't relate to their tribes, and the tribes would ultimately reject them because they, they'd forgotten what it was to be Indian, which I thought was quite an interesting sort of scenario. It kind of hints back into the fact that Chandler has this troubled past that he's constantly trying to escape from, and something has happened in America from which he's running, and we've always known that, but it, it has, it, it's intrinsically linked somehow to, to Indians. Um, so, we we learn that uh, Frankenstein um, wants to learn how to shoot. Victor Frankenstein wants to learn how to shoot because, obviously, he want, he's got this in the back of his head. He's, he's not going to be traumatised by this monster anymore. He might have to take things in his own hands. And we get this really cool bonding scene between the two of them. 
Um, so, which is pretty cool, um, because at, for the most part of the season, Victor Frankenstein and Ethan Chandler have not liked each other at all, um, and now we kind of see that they're they're kind of bonding over guns, which was quite funny. Um, we also find that that Frankenstein's got a bit of a drug habit, mm-hmm. which. Um, you know, I think it had been hinted on earlier in the show, but in this episode, it's pretty much brought to the forefront, um, which I thought was quite interesting as well. Um, we get we get a, a we finally get the story about what happened to Sir Malcolm's son, kinda in a roundabout yeah. way, um, and we find out exactly how selfish the man is, down to the point that his son. As a dying wish, said that um, he wanted something named after him, a mountain range named after him. And when Sir Malcolm finally comes across his range of mountains, um, he names them the Murray Mountains, which, you know, on face value, it sounds like he's named after his son. But he comes clean and basically says, you know, I named them for me. I didn't name them for my son. So we realise that he, he is a fairly selfish character um, at heart. There's so much more happening on here. Uh, basically, things get a, quite a bad turn, um, and Chandler eventually comes in. And I've got a lot of notes here, and I told you about this last time we were recording. I've just got loads of notes that just say Chandler is boss. Because <laughs> pretty much everything he does in this episode, he's just a fucking badass motherfucker. Oh, he's just a swaggering big ride in this episode, isn't he? He, he really fucking is. I mean, I love the fact that he, he shows up... He shows up, he walks into the room and um, as soon as he goes, as soon as he sees the state Vanessa's in, he goes straight to her um, and, you know, and tries to help her straight away and then, you know, just starts like properly just owning the place. Everything he does is, you know, very powerful and he's, he's very charismatic as a character. Um, when he overhears the comment about... Um, Murray wanting to get Vanessa to use her on-death's door gift. Um, He confronts Murray about it and says, you know, if I find out that this is why you're letting her suffer and this is why it's went this far, you know, I will kill you myself. Um, I'll rip your throat out is the actual term he uses, which obviously kind of ties in later on. Oh, yes, it does indeed. Um, So, they, they bring a priest in. Which is which is one of my favourite things. M- meanwhile, can I just say, Eva Green is performing her tits at like seriously. She uh, she genuinely looks like a woman possessed by a demon. She is her face is contorting into horrible positions. She looks genuinely gaunt, um, and you know, oh, just for, she just performs so well in this episode. Yeah, the- I mean, I, I've seen uh, I, I've seen The Exorcist. And a, and a couple other kind of exorcisty type films. Do you know, not as mm-hmm. many as you have, obviously, but I have seen a few, but this is up there with any of them. Yeah. Um, she's, I... she's very frightening at points, particularly when she's crouching. And, and yeah. there, there's no effects really used until right towards the end. Mm-hmm. It, it is just her acting, and she's fucking scary like. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, it's as noticeable as a. And I forget her name. It's Jennifer Gardner, I think, is her name. Uh, from Dexter, the the one that plays Debs. Uh-huh. And Dexter. She's in a film called Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh-huh. 
I've heard um, of that. Yeah, and she she played on in that she there's no special effects as well. All the facial contortions and everything she does in that is basically her, um, and that kind of evoked that sort of kind of spirit of that, which I, I thought was really really good. Um, so basically, this priest comes in, and after the priest has basically said, you know, listen, you would need to pretty much move heaven and earth to have an exorcism, um, and you know, like you know, you need to go and see, you need to go and see her. And the priest gets quite close to her and she fucking bites him. Uh-huh. She, she goes for him. Um, very similar to what we saw her do when she was in the insane asylum. Yeah. Um, when, when the guy got too close, she went for him. So, and then all these supernatural things start happening. Characters get flung out the room using supernatural force. And th- this was quite interesting to me because Ethan restrains her and then all of a sudden... Ethan apparently conducts like some sort of exorcism, but it's not like a full exorcism. Um, and all of a sudden starts speaking in Latin. Yeah. Which, obviously, we're going to need to find out at, at some point how he knows this. You know, how he's come across this gift, but um, he uses the 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 pendant that was given to him by Brona um, to basically... Oh, that's what that was. Yeah, I never yeah, picked yeah. up on that. Yeah, St. Christopher she gave him. That's right, he uses yeah. that and temporarily... St. Jude, sorry, it was actually. No, it's was it St. Jude? Yeah. Um, to, to expunge the demon for for uh, what we think at the time is for good. Um, but yeah, so he, he does that um, and basically everything starts to settle down a wee bit um, and we, we think Vanessa has got rid of the demon. But then we find out that she hasn't because she has a vision of the theatre, the, the Grand Grulignol Theatre, um, and which uh, we have this, this repeated phrase over and over again. And then she appears downstairs and says to Sir Malcolm that she knows where Mina is. Um, and that is so all pretty much the end of the episode right there um this was a really fucking good episode um once again it hasn't really moved the story along it felt like a bit of exposition to kind of cool down the fact that mina disappeared from the boat and where is she now um but i really liked this Uh, like i say it's possessions go this is one of the best portrayed ones i've seen on screen um in a long time I think Eva Green did really well. I think it was really cool to finally see um, the the Chandler character kind of start bringing a bit of swagger back into his character because at the very start when we met him, he was very full of himself, very brash. Um, He was a performer, basically, but now to find out that he can actually back that up um, was cool. Once again, we're moving on with the Victor Frankenstein story. The, The monster definitely wants what he wants mm-hmm. um and i can't remember I've, I've not written it in here and i'm starting to wonder if it's in this episode or the next episode but and you if it's not in this one i'll edit this out but did the monster get flung out of the theater in episode uh, no that's my episode right right that's cool we don't we won't say any more about that um but yeah so i i thought i thought this was a really powerful episode what about you guys uh yeah i I loved this episode, and to me, this was horror. You know, it, it, up till now, the story has had a kind of gothic horror kind of flavour to it. There's been kind of horror elements in it, um, and more kind of supernatural, you know, more of a kind of thriller feel to it almost. 
but this to me these the exorcism scenes that was horror um some of it was genuinely quite scary for me um as, as i said earlier on uh, eva green's acting in it is fucking superb absolutely superb she just looks terrifying she looks demented she looks evil at points do you know what i mean um there was a great scene as well which she didn't mention um where she seems to it's kind of coming in bouts these possessions she's at rest at this point she's kind of sleeping we see chandler sitting next to her in the room Mm -hmm. Um, oh yes yeah yeah you know and then she wakes up and she's talking to him and and he's you know holding her hand and all that and everything seems great and then he just leans in and he says something along the lines of like when your cunt god cast me down Mm -hmm. um and the way he fucking says it and i hadn't caught on to the fact and obviously this is chandler's not there he is we see shortly after that he's downstairs with the others uh this is this demon um coming to her again in the form of Chandler. Uh, but the way Chandler does it, it's like something like a fucking Deicide album, the way he talks yeah. to him, do you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I thought that bit was brilliant as well. Um, and then the bit, the bit at the end when there are some effects used, basically when she attacks the priest and then you see her doing the jumping onto the ceiling exorcist type move, do you know what yeah. I mean? But all brilliantly done and what I really liked was there was just the one little bit of that. So you got the good effects, like, oh, that's cool as fuck, do you know what I mean? But they hadn't relied on that throughout all. They had just used her and her acting ability, and I just thought it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant episode. Yeah, definitely. Best episode um, so far up to this point in my mind. I would agree with that. I, I, and once again, I think, I mean, fr- from my point of view, she's a new character, you know what I mean, in terms of what we've got in the lore. Um, yeah, she didn't exist. Yeah, and which I think was one of the reasons I hadn't taken to her up until this point, mm-hmm. because you're kind of with this program, you're constantly kind of going, "Oh, who is that?" You know, what of the you know Dorian Gray? So you're on Wikipedia and crap like that, trying to find out a wee bit more about Dorian Gray and stuff like that. But she is just a character created for this show, and I think that was how I struggled to connect with her a wee bit kind of thing initially. Mm-hmm. But I would say that that's definitely gone now. Definitely, definitely. So, anything else you want to say before we we jump on and deal with this motherfucking finale? <laughs> no, let's go for the big man. Right, we are going to play the teaser trailer for episode number eight, the finale of A Penny Dreadful, and we will be right back after this. I believe in curses. I believe in demons. I believe in monsters. Do you? What haven't you told me? I would sacrifice you to save my daughter. I would choose her over you. In this life, there are hungers that compel us. You will make me an immortal mate. You have nothing to fear. There is a price to pay for such a passage. It won't be long. The order is taken. Out here, enjoy the hunt. That intimacy released something I cannot allow. It's too dangerous. Can't run forever either. We'll seize our moment under no circumstances are you to approach her. She is my responsibility. Ah, welcome back. So you have just heard the trailer for episode number eight, the season finale 
of the Showtime show, A Penny Dreadful. Um, I'm here, of course, with my man, The Baz, and uh, this episode was called Grand Gugnol. Guignol. Guignol, thank you. Um, <laughs> damn the Scottish tongue. French is n- it does not come easy to someone as, as uncouth as myself. Um, so this episode uh, actually was shown on the 29th of June, 2014, so just a couple of weeks ago, really. Um so we're, we're kind of almost on the pulse here with this one, Baz, just slightly yep. off. Um, and the very brief synopsis for this one is Vanessa, Sir Malcolm, Ethan, Dr. Frankenstein and the manservant, whose name I can't pronounce, explore an empty theatre only to be confronted by their worst nightmares. So, Baz, yep. season finale. Season finale. Tell us all about it. Let's do it. Uh, as you say, Dunk, this episode's called Grand Guignol, which I think I'm correct in saying is the name of the theatre that uh, Caliban works in, you know, yeah. the theatre that we've seen through through the, the whole thing, which ties in to the ending of the last episode, the one that you discussed earlier there. And at the end of that, although Vanessa doesn't say it outright, she reveals that uh, Mina has been kept in the theatre. Mm-hmm. So this episode opens with uh, Sir Malcolm and Vanessa talking about the theatre where she believes that Mina's been held kind of thing. Um, And through the course uh, of the conversation, Sir Malcolm says that he's not going to abandon his daughter to suffer the way that he did his son. Because as you were saying there, he spoke about Peter in the last episode and talked about leaving him to die, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he can carry on surveying rivers and fucking shit like that, you know. Um, And he's clearly kind of haunted by that and he's not going to do the same to Mina. Um, Doreen Gray appears, um, and he appears a couple of times in this episode to little effect, to be quite honest, I don't really fucking know why they brought him in in this episode for I've, all that he did, you know. Yeah, I've got I've got a sneaky suspicion because there's I think he's going to be a major player in season two. Yeah, I, I get yeah. I, I get a feeling he's going to become a bit of a villain in season two. If I'm honest, um, I well, think that might tie in with what I'm going to say in a wee minute. Then right, but right there. Um, basically, he comes to see Vanessa again, obviously after their their sort of sexual encounter um, a couple of episodes back. Um, and he's kind of asking her out again, and, and she refuses. Um, obviously, her and Sir Malcolm are kind of gearing up to head down to this theatre. She's got other shit on her plate. Um, but he looks very kind of disappointed. I've written here, he looks gutted. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's obviously very disappointed by this. But she doesn't entertain it, and she just swans off kind of thing. Um, we then see Chandler, uh, and he is back at the inn uh, next to the bed, Verona's there, she's very gravely ill by this point, and we see him praying, and again, it's interesting to note, he's praying in Latin at this point, now this ties in again to what you said, to the kind of, the almost kind of exorcism that he performed on Vanessa, Yeah. in the previous one, there, there's definitely something there, I mean, you couldn't fucking rattle Latin out like that, you know, uh, unless you have some kind of training, I'm beginning to wonder if he was some kind of priest in some previous life or, or something like that. But I just thought it was quite interesting to note that, again, he was speaking very fluently in Latin when he was praying. Yeah. Um, he then leaves, um, and we find out later on that he's actually going to see uh, Frankenstein. But as you see him leaving the inn, we see the, the, another two characters that we've not met before uh, who are basically sort of out in the docks outside the inn and they're watching for him. 
And one of them, in fact, he, he looks kind of Native American. Um, he's got the long, dark hair and everything. Looks like a kind of a Native American. And um, we've not seen them before um, at all. And as Chandler leaves, they, they then follow him. Um, we then cut, there's another short scene, which again, I think, is possibly reintroducing another character who'll come in later on. Basically, Sir Malcolm has gone to a gun shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and the owner takes him through the back in a very kind of conspiratorial manner kind of thing, takes him through the back shop where he shows him this prototype gun um, and I believe it's like a, a Mauser, I think was the name of these guns Yeah. Um, it's an early kind of handheld machine gun, like a, a machine pistol as opposed to a submachine gun kind of thing um, and he, he's shown how it can fire like sort of seven bullets and rapid fire and stuff like this Um in Mal- so Malcolm's obviously been in purchasing this thing. So he takes that, and as he's leaving, we again see the, the clairvoyant from, I think it was episode two. Yeah. It was two or three when we had that seance, and that was the first kind of time that we saw Vanessa, this kind of possession, this second sight that she's got. Yeah. There was a clairvoyant in that who, it was kind of put across, was a bit of a fake. Yes, that's right. Um, it's her, her character comes back in. Now, as I was saying to you, she is a relatively big actress in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in um, The Peaky Blinders, which was a kind of period drama thriller thing that I watched a while ago with my wife. She had a fairly leading part in that. She's married to Damien Lewis from Homeland. Oh, right. Um, and I did kind of what I thought she was a bit too big a name just to be in that kind of 20 minute scene. Yeah. At the time, you know. As I say, she comes back in, the two of them kind of flirt quite outrageously with each other and then he says he has to go and that's the fucking end of it again. Again, I think this is maybe what you were saying earlier on, I think she will come into this season two at some point. Yeah, she had this kind of... Possibly as a kind of love interest to some Malcolm or something like that, you know? I got, I got the feeling that she might be a slightly more sinister character as well, just from her mannerisms, if you know what yeah. I mean. She seemed a wee bit kind of suspect and almost kind of cloak and dagger with the way she was looking and the way that he walked out and then the camera swung back to her <laughs> and she's sitting there smoking with a arched st- eyebrows yeah, yeah. cigarette eye it was fucking Machiavellian wasn't it? All, all it was missing was the dramatic music they have from Austin Powers where it goes dun 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 <laughs> you know what I mean that's pretty much what it was like yeah. uh, as I say so that, that's the end of that scene and we, we don't see her again uh, for the rest of the episode um, we then cut back to the, the theatre so it's during the day and they're, they're, the cast are in the middle of a rehearsal the, the Vincent character who kind of runs the theatre that befriended Caliban he's there and an actor and an actress and it is the actress that we've seen previously mm-hmm. um, and the actor who I think she's kind of in a relationship with and they're performing this thing and we, we see Caliban and he's doing the props uh, as is his job um, and there's a bit where that he the the male actor kind of levitates or flies and Caliban does this by pulling him up on a rope kind of thing but it gets caught up um, and it's all a bit of a fucking disaster um, and he, he rushes away downstairs to apologise to them all and the, the male actor is very horrible to him and get out my sight you disgust me you're a monster and all, all this kind of stuff and it's, it's quite kind of heartbreaking um, Later on, then, the young actress Maud goes to see Caliban and she takes him an orange as a gift kind of thing, basically to say sorry um, for the guy, for the way he'd spoken to Caliban kind of thing. Um, and she thanks him for the book that he'd given her uh, previously. Um, 
and there's a again there's a bit of a fixation the the book that he had given her was Milton's Paradise Lost that's right yeah because it had a a, a page in it that had an illustration of Lucifer uh, falling from heaven and which is what Paradise Lost is all about and she had mentioned that her brother I think it was was called Lucifer but they called him Luke or something like that mm-hmm. um and Caliban kind of waxes on about certain lines from this again and this kind of ties in with these lines that um, you know, Vanessa and Victor Frankenstein, they have these lines that they're very focused on. And it, it, with them, it's from Keats, I think, or something like that. So again, you've got the very heavy kind of literature thing coming in there. I, I fault the bits at this because my knowledge of classic literature is fucking less than useless, to be quite honest. <laughs> but um, it does seem very important to the whole thing. And quite importantly, as she goes to leave, she kind of plants a wee kiss on his forehead kind of thing to say, you know, like, thank you. Um, we then see there's another scene with Malcolm and Vanessa. Uh, again, they're kind of talking backwards and forwards, but it gets quite fraught at this point, and Malcolm basically says to her that he will quite willingly sacrifice Vanessa in order to save Mina. And he basically says, you know, the only reason... I'm keeping you alive kind of thing is because of your connection to Mina as a means of finding her kind of thing. And it's quite horrible. Um, and kind of out the blue because the, 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 they, up to this point they seem to be having quite a good relationship, you know what I mean? But it's maybe more pointing towards his character that he is a, just a complete shit, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, I think in a lot of ways, I think um, it's like you said earlier on, I think the fact that he did not pay attention to his son and ultimately took his son somewhere his son would never survive and his son didn't survive through his negligence. I think he's become quite ruthless because he is determined that the same will not happen to his daughter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's quite a short scene. We jump back to the the, the theatre again and Caliban sets off to see Maud again. Uh, But it's quite disturbing. He's applied makeup to his face presumably in an attempt to make himself look more human kind of thing, but it, it's failed very badly and he looks really fucking odd. And he's got the orange and he's basically taking it back to her to give back to her as a gift kind of thing, you know. She's kind of taken aback by this makeup and she kind of laughs at first. Um, and he's trying to talk to her and he gets kind of aggressive and she gets quite frightened and tells him to leave. And then he attacks her um, and he kind of forces a kiss on her kind of thing, you know, and he's got her by the neck and stuff like that and she's screaming... And then he seems to calm down and he kind of runs off. Uh, and this then results in him being sacked from the theatre by Vincent, um, who makes no bones about it. You know, he would rather, he, he says something along the lines of, you know, I would rather keep you than her, but the public want the star performer kind of thing, you know, and my hands are tied to the public kind of thing, you know. Um, and quite interestingly, you see Caliban saying, you know, he, he doesn't blame Vincent for this and he thanks him for the kindness that he'd shown him yeah um, but the, the best bit is it's right at the end the camera then pans up kind of into the rafters at the very top of the theatre and we see for the first time the vampire creature sleeping up there uh, which obviously confirms what Vanessa had been saying about them being in the theatre Um there's then a, the second of these scenes with Vanessa and uh, Dorian Gray in that kind of Victorian hothouse gardens thing that had been to previously. Um, they're fucking blethering away, slebbering shite. Um, and she says that the sex awoke the thing that's inside her, basically, and, and she very forcefully kind of rejects him and states that, you know, he's like that, I don't understand what's happening here, and she's like, that's rejection. 
Yeah. Um, and he struggles very, very badly to deal with this. In fact, you see him crying, and, and it's almost like he doesn't understand what's happening, that he's shedding tears kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that then maybe could tie back to what you were saying. Yes. Maybe he will become hell bent on revenge against him because so. he's been scorned, kind of thing. I think it's so. never happened to him, you know. Um, we then see uh, Caliban has gone to Frank Victor Frankenstein's lab, um, and Victor's saying, you know, he, he can't stay there, and Caliban saying, love nowhere else to go. Um, but Victor's telling you he can't forgive him for killing Van Helsing the way he did. Um, and we then see Victor kind of standing behind Caliban and he, and he draws very quietly, draws a, a revolver out and points it at the back of his head and this ties back to what you were saying earlier on about uh, Chandler teaching him how to shoot. He's obviously planning on killing Caliban to get him out of his life. Yeah. Um, but Caliban kind of goes into this soliloquy um, about how he thought he was just ugly on the outside, but he's not, he's ugly on the inside. It's obviously kind of regret over what he did to the girl at the theatre. Um, and he, he gets very upset, and then he just basically says, pull the trigger. You know, and he, he we didn't realise that he knew there was a gun behind him kind of thing. Um, and he's basically pleading with Victor to kill him kind of thing, you know, because he doesn't want to carry on. Uh, but Victor's seeing this kind of anguish in him, that he then loses the will to kill him kind of thing, you know, so mm -hmm. he doesn't pull the trigger in the end. Then the door goes and, and it's Chandler. This is what I've seen earlier on. When he'd left and he'd gone to Victor, he wants her, he wants him rather to come to Brona's aid because obviously Victor is a doctor, so he goes to see uh, Brona. Um, she, she's clearly getting very close to death kind of thing, you know. And Victor's saying, you know, there's not really anything I can do. I can kind of give her a sedative kind of thing. And he sends Chandler away to get water or some fucking thing. And he's talking to Brona, um, and she says that she's scared of what is waiting on her. Um, she makes it clear that she kind of renounced her faith, her belief in God and all that kind of stuff, you know. And now she's frightened that she's going to go to hell or something like that. And obviously Victor, as you'd kind of clocked fairly early on, he's now got his eye on Brona as a possible candidate for the Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically kind of offers her this chance to be born again. She very weakly kind of agrees, and he smothers her yeah. at this point uh, to kill her. Um, Chandler comes back, and he just says, you know, listen, she passed while you were out the room kind of thing, you know, but her, her pain's over, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, Chandler's utterly crushed by this. Uh, Victor goes to leave, but he does say, listen, don't worry about it, I'll leave you to say your goodbyes and then I'll, I'll deal with the body, don't you worry about that. Obviously he's wanting to get the body away with him. And Chandler's totally crushed by what, what, that she's dead. Um, he then leaves the inn uh, and goes to a bar, presumably get smashed, um, and he's followed there with these two Americans, who now make the, the ones that we'd saw earlier on, who now make contact with him. Uh, they reveal very quickly that they know who he is, they reveal this to Chandler, they call him by his name, and they basically say, oh, you know, your father misses you, he wants you home now, and we've heard of Chandler's father before, he obviously has a very strained relationship with his father, um, and they're basically saying, and if he wants you home, we're, we're going, you're going home, kind of thing, you know. He asks if they're US Marshals, and they're not, they are Pinkertons, they're, they're employees of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which was a kind of a private... A, security slash investigation 
thing that was very big in America uh, for a long, long time, uh, round about that kind of period there, uh, late 18, early 1900s. Um, Chandler then kicks the shit out, the two of them walks out. <laughs> That's right, aye. <laughs> Which is very well done. He glasses one and then basically throttles the Native American with a fucking chain. Um, which is pretty cool, I've got to say. Um, interestingly, the, the, na- the, the white one introduces himself and his partner and he introduces the, the partner as a Native American. But he says, you know, but he was taken away and educated and made a Christian and all that, which ties back to what you were speaking about in that last episode, mm-hmm. this idea of taking these the Indian children away and trying to make them Americanized kind of thing, you know. Um, he then leaves and meets Vanessa and the rest of them at the theatre, and they, we then see them all entering the theatre to try and find Mina. Um, quite quickly, they spot the vampire up in the roof, uh, but just as they do, so Chandler, who he's armed to the teeth kind of thing, a trap door opens and he goes right through it into the bit underneath the stage where Caliban used to work. Uh, and he's kind of swarmed by these female vampires that we've seen. Um, and there's a, a quite intense but fairly short fight scene um, compared to some of the other fight scenes that we've seen in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. This one's quite tame and, and quite short which is kind of surprising what with this leading to the big kind of crescendo at the end. Um, the This kind of Nosferatu vampire character, he comes down, goes to attack Vanessa, but kind of freezes. She just stares at him, and Sir Malcolm steps in with his sword and kind of just stabs him through the chest. Falls off the platform onto the stage below. But he doesn't die. Sir Malcolm goes after it and stabs it again. Um and it appears to die at this point. Right at this point, we see Chandler getting kind of overwhelmed underneath the stage with the the female vampires, but as soon as this lead vampire, if you like, dies, they all just... everything kind of stops. Um, And then at this point, Mina appears to Vanessa and Sir Malcolm. Um, And she seems okay at first, uh, and, and Vanessa goes up and hugs her and that, and then... We get this change that we saw before, I think, at the end of episode five, um, five or six, where her face appears to change, the eyes go black and everything. And she basically kind of takes Vanessa hostage. Um, And interestingly, she refers to Vanessa as the master's bride. Yes. And basically says, now that I've found the master's bride, he'll sire like an army of vampires with her kind of thing, you know? Mm and she spouts on another wee bit, and then we see her fangs, and she goes to bite Vanessa in a very kind of Dracula-esque kind of way. Uh, but rather surprisingly, Sir Malcolm whips out this fucking Mauser pistol thing that he's got and shoots her. Um, and she's lying there, kind of fatally wounded. She says, you know, but I'm your daughter, and he says, I already have a daughter, and yeah. kind of looks at Vanessa, which is quite surprising based on what has been said in the past couple of episodes. Um, we then see uh, Victor preparing to bring Brona back. She's on the table thing in his lab and Caliban standing there watching kind of thing. Um, we see Chandler uh, drinking in the bar again, or a different bar, uh, and the, the two pink curtains turn up again. 
Um, and they're basically saying, you know, right, well, listen, fair's fair, you got one over on us there, but you're coming with us now kind of thing. Um, are you going to come or are we going to have to chain you up like a monkey, which is a term they'd used earlier on. Um, and it, it, Chandler's head's down at this point, his hands are on the table and his head's kind of hidden from the camera and he just says something along the lines of, no, there's no monkey here. And then very quickly looks up and, and his face is kind of changed into the wolf man. Mm-hmm. And you see his fang and he, it's one of those kind of split second fight scenes. He just attacks the two of them very quickly. One of them goes down and then you see a sort of blood spurt hit a window from the outside kind of thing. You don't see any more of that and you would really need to freeze frame to try and actually get a good shot of him as the wolf man. Yeah. Uh, because it is very fleeting kind of thing. But we do see and it does confirm something that you had twigged about six episodes back that he was actually the wolf man, which is cool as fuck, to be honest. Yeah. Um, final scene uh, Vanessa is, goes into a church and we see some interspersed footage of the others going about the different things they are doing Victor trying to raise Barona and all this kind of stuff Vanessa asks to speak to a priest goes into a room with him he's a Welsh fellow um, and in a very roundabout way basically asks him to perform an exorcism um, and initially he seems much more up for the whole idea than the one the priest in the last episode uh, but he talks about uh, a boy that died in Wales um, mm-hmm. and he'd been present at the exorcism and so on and so forth and then rather strangely starts to say you know when you've been like possessed like this it's and he says something along the lines of it, it's like being hit by the backhand of God Yes. and it makes you kind of sacred in your own way and he says, so the only thing I want to ask you before I do this, do you really want to be normal? Mm-hmm. Kind of implying that this possession makes her sacred in some kind of way, even though it's demonic. Yeah. Um, and she, her mouth kind of half open, as if she's about to speak, and then it just goes to credits so we don't find out what she says. Yeah. And that's the end of Penny Dreadful Season 1. Yeah, yeah. Um... In general, it's a good episode. Um, not quite as good as the... I think they shot their bolt with fucking the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going to take a lot to fucking top that just for sheer fucking suspense and kind of terror. Um, it ties up a lot of things. It answers a lot of questions, which is great. It still leaves... <coughs> excuse me. It still leaves plenty of stuff there that we don't know, which is cool because it keeps you interested for season two. But... They're not complete dicks about it, so we do find that Chandler's the Wolfman and, and Barona's going to be the Bride of Frankenstein and things like that. You get wee teasers about Vanessa, this Bride of Dracula thing. Um, yeah, so all that was pretty cool. The only thing I would say is I just felt that... I felt that the show was building to this fucking massive crescendo right at the end. Yeah. And it just fell short of that for me. It, it, like I say, I think it peaked in episode seven and it didn't it just didn't hit the heights I was hoping for. Uh, the action scene and so on, like the fight with the vampires, was quite muted compared to some of the other fight scenes that we'd seen with them in previous episodes. It'd just be things like that. I'm not decrying it. It didn't take away from enjoyment at all. I, I just, I was slightly disappointed. I was maybe expecting a big more explosive finale. But overall, a great ending to the series and a great fucking series. I've got to say. Yeah, I would, I would, yourself. I would agree. I think um, 
the the kind of I think the possession story was put in there to kind of slow the pace almost because it almost caught the Mina character. They only had two episodes left. They don't want to rescue Mina or kind of bring that up in episode seven. But unfortunately, by taking a whole episode with the possession, which I think was justified, I think it was great, um, unfortunately meant that they had to tie up a lot of things for the end of season one. I think as a result of that, to to when you see the sheer amount of character stories that are going, unfortunately that meant that that end fight sequence was a bit anticlimactic. But the fact that we then find out that the Nosferatu vampire isn't actually Dracula... Yeah. Um, ...on some level kind of makes that fight feel all right, you know what I mean? Because if if it had taken, you know, a massive fight sequence and three of them to bring down the Nosferatu uh, vampire, how the fuck are they going to bring down the master when yeah. they finally meet him? So I, I quite, I, on some levels, I can kind of see where they were going. Um, like you say, quite glad that they've, they've kind of moved forward with certain things. We no longer have the speculation about Ethan Chandler's character as a wolfman, although it was pointed out to me... After I'd finished watching um, the show, I listened to another podcast that did a special in-depth look at the show, and they were actually talking about the opening credits, and apparently when you watch the opening credits, the sequence that precedes each of the characters' faces has an indication of what their true character is, and apparently there's a wolf snarl right before um, Chandler's face appears on the screen, which indicates <laughs> that he's a wolfman, and that's All been right. there... That's been there right since the start, Baz, so we've just been slowing the uptake, I think. Um, no, we're just no dweebs like the rest of them, mate, as or as. You're too fucking cool to examine the fucking opening credits in such detail. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, we're, we're left in this scenario where uh, so Malcolm, if he does make an appearance um, in season two, it will be purely to get vengeance for the daughter he's lost. Um, they might not bring him back. I, I mean, really, his story in some level has been wrapped up. Um, maybe not completely satisfying to the character, but his quest is now over, um, uh-huh. unless he goes down a quest of vengeance. Um, there's obviously plenty still happening. Victor uh, Frankenstein... Uh, he, sorry? Sorry to interrupt. Do, do you know, I think he, he maybe he will carry on to protect Vanessa he now uses the daughter kind of thing Aye. so obviously she's a target now if you like yes well now that we know that you know ultimately now that we know that two people are trying to get her up the duff right we've got we've got <laughs> uh, we've got this demon insider wants to to bring forth what we can only assume is the antichrist um and uh dracula wants to have a child with her that will bring pretty much the same end to the planet um, makes her like a, a kind of very special commodity. Meanwhile, we've got Dorian Gray, who is completely pining after her because she's a an entity that he that he can't quite work out. Um, he's it's something fresh and new, and the fact that she's broke his heart makes me think that he will get quite sinister. We've obviously got the reveal that Brona will be the Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Chandler being the Wolfman, um, all these things moving forward. It makes me wonder where they go with a season two. It's obvious that Dracula is going to be the big bad. There are plenty of characters from that time period um, of kind of classic kind of horror 
um, that could still make an appearance. We could have the Hunchback in Notre Dame. We could have Jekyll and Hyde. We could have the Invisible Man if we're moving into the movies. We could have the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Phantom of the Opera. So there, there's plenty of other characters that can come in and I'm looking forward to seeing where they take it. Um, mm-hmm. Overall, I, I thought it was a very very well put together show a lot better than I actually thought it was going to be um, just the premise um, and brief description of how the, what the show was going to be about kind of left me thinking it could be quite cool but leave me with a lot of doubts they delivered and as long as they keep bringing characters in you know the cast have got are brilliant but as long as they keep bringing new characters in that have the same weight and acting chops as the ones they have I think everything's I think everything's yeah. going to be cool man definitely definitely so yeah yeah I, this is a a strong recommend i think eight episodes felt on some level a wee bit short for me um like you were saying i, I would have quite liked to see that last episode maybe fleshed out into two episodes mm-hmm. um and i love that end i love that ending of you know what exactly does the priest mean when he says that um yeah you know yeah. is, is is he just being is he just being is he looking at it for her best interests in some way trying to put her off from having exorcism because it's killed people? Or does he genuinely think that, which is a quite a radical departure from anything you would see in these films, that being touched, even if it is by the hand of Satan, um, makes you extraordinary? And with that in mind, why would you want to go to be an ordinary person? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like that because that, that you know that is an open ended question that could be taken several ways. So, um, yeah, loved it, absolutely loved it. Yep, definitely, fully agree. So, I mean, we'll have another year now until we we tackle season two. Well, uh, we'll find some fucking shit to talk about in I between, think, Duncan. Don't worry, yeah, man. I think our next one is possibly Constantine. Depending, oh, on it. I would say so, sir. Yeah, and then obviously uh, American Horror Story, and maybe even if you wanted, maybe even if you wanted, we could start, uh, maybe even possibly doing The Walking Dead because I know that's a show we both watch as well. So. Oh yeah, I love it, man. Love so it. so uh, it might, that may be that may be on the cards for somewhere down the line. But I hope that our listeners have enjoyed um, us talking through Penny Dreadful in a more positive way than we did from Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And um, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, my man. I, as I, always, I, my friend, as always. I think the next time we will speak to you is uh, for Baz v Horror 10. Yep. Um, where we'll see what particular nasty piece of work uh, our listeners have picked for you. <laughs> Can't wait. Neither can I. So we're going to take a very short break just now. Uh, when I return, we are going to be doing our first film review. I'll be joined by uh, Johnny Krug. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. So the trailer for that movie will be coming up right after this break. I want to take you to Seventh Heaven tonight. I want you to come with me. 1976, as opposed to the rest of the planet, a young man is afflicted by a new type of music crowding the airwaves. Do you mean to tell me you've never heard of disco music? Well, it's not really about music, but it's more about dancing and having fun. Oh, you're saying earlier that you were a friend of the victim? That maniac has killed six people in one week. I've never seen that in my life. Every time he hears music, he kills. Attention à vous, Samiri. C'est peut-être un suspect. J'ai besoin de son adresse maintenant. 
toutes ses actions commandées par l'autre ne demeureront que blasphème au visage de l'au-delà. On se voit toujours demain, ma soeur. Hey, salut la gang, c'est Sylvain Duplessis en direct du club le plus hot de l'été pour une autre émission de... Suspect is an American citizen. Disco killer, he gets off on the power of music. This guy's extremely dangerous. Me and my colleagues are investigating the murder. This is no longer your disco, it's an official crime scene. I'm bringing Disco Boy home, dead or alive. You're a good cop. This case really did get to you, didn't it? He'll show, you'll see. All he needs is a little music. Welcome back, and you have just heard the trailer for Disco Path. So let me give you some information on that movie. Uh, the film came out in 2013. Uh, it was directed by, and I'm going to butcher some names in this, I apologise, uh, <laughs> Reynald Guthier, I think that's how you pronounce it. Damn my Scottish tongue. Um, it stars... Oh, God, this is going to be interesting. Uh, Catherine Ataki. Uh, Francois Alban, uh, Sandrine Buisson, Nancy Blias or Blias, uh, Catherine Castellucci, uh, Catherine Cleland, and a bunch of other people with French names or Canadian French names. Um, the <laughs> synopsis for this movie is the mid nineteen seventies. A timid young New Yorker leads an uneventful life until he is fatefully exposed to the pulsating rhythms of a brand new genre of music, disco. Unable to control his murderous impulses that stem from a traumatic childhood experience, which, by the way, is absolutely hilarious, um, Dwayne Lewis transforms <laughs> into a dangerous serial killer exiled to Montreal. So I first heard of this film... Only a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of my colleagues over on the Midnight Horror Show, uh, the the mighty undead, um, had mentioned this just in the passing as a as a film that I needed to check out just to see what I thought of it. And um, I checked it a couple of weeks ago, and this is the third time I've seen this movie now. Uh, oh, wow. I, just because I I don't know that I think there's something really quite interesting about it, but. Um, as as tradition on this show, uh, on the first movie review, I acquiesce to my my guest, um, Johnny. Tell us, you, you can go into. We'll, we'll not spoil this one. Actually, we'll we'll do our spoiler tag. Um, if you just want to tell us what your thoughts about this movie is, um, I'll do the same. We'll score it, and then we'll go into a bit of spoiler territory after that. What did you think of Disco Path? You know, honestly, going into it, like, like I read the plot synopsis and stuff. And I thought it was going to be more comedic, but which it definitely it does have a lot of comedy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. But I really liked the uh, it had that old exploitation feel to it, and it, it took itself seriously uh, quite a bit, which I, I liked. But it was it was so uneven; it was like an oddity that it was just really entertaining. Like, yeah. I, I I really dug it. I thought the the lead actor in it he was um, he played the role very well. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's that's a hard thing to do, especially in 2013, to to 
being a movie set in the seventies in New York and, uh, in Canada and, and to, I don't know, to, cause everybody kind of passed in this movie. I thought everybody really seemed like they would have been around back then. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's, that, that is one of the big things that's, that, that sold the movie to me is how, I mean, I've seen, there, there are a lot of films that are coming out just now that are kind of harking back to an older age of cinema, whether that's using camera effects uh, to make themselves deliberately Grindhouse-esque, or, um, you know, trying to get actors who will wear, you know, period piece clothing to, to fit in with a particular decade or something like that. Very much like you, this feels like a Grindhouse movie. It feels like kind of exploitation Grindhouse sort of thing. But at the same time, the, there's an authenticity about the way all the characters, like the dialogue is is very believable. And just the feel of the movie is very... Like, if you watch this, you could see that the, the attention to detail to try and make this feel like a 70s movie... Um, is there right from the start uh, and I, I totally pick up what you're saying and totally agree with um, the the weird sort of tones that are in this film because when you read the tagline for the poster it says he was made for loving you right and then the guy's <laughs> the guy's face is against the disco ball and that's what I thought I thought this is some sort of kind of horror comedy sort of thing like that and it's surprisingly how blunt and brutal this movie is at times um but there like you say there is a a, a kind of almost disparity of how they they handle the tone throughout the movie um when we go into spoilers uh we, we can explain the the kind of very interesting backstory of what led this killer to be a killer <laughs> which did make me laugh out loud and has the subsequent two times i've seen it since just because it's ludicrous but um yeah yeah i think to me, it's very well shot. I actually really like the recurring soundtrack. Oh yeah, the soundtrack's place. awesome. I really, really like, and I'm not a fan of disco. I'll, I'll be, I'll be openly honest that disco to me is is not something that I find myself gravitating to. Um, not even Kiss doing a disco song is <laughs> enough to, to to bring me into the fold. Um, but I, I really liked it, um, and there's a particular song that gets played quite a lot in it, um, and it's like a disco version of a, feels like a, almost a more classical song, um, that I thought worked really well. The the thing I like too is that, uh, like, the it's it was really untraditional as far as something like a slasher or a straight-up exploitation movie, just the way that the, the, the kills would happen, and... Yeah, I, for me the the way that he'd be triggered, and then all of a sudden, there like things were just so sudden. Yeah, and it kind of came out of nowhere because the movie it's it's pretty steady in pace, but um, it, it, you know there are, there's a lot of dialogue and stuff, and then when the kills come, it's just like they're just pretty pretty blunt. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the thing is as well, the movie's only like eighty minutes long. It's a short movie, um, but it doesn't feel rushed. Uh, which I think I think works. To, I mean, it knows exactly what it wants to do. I think it gets in and gets it done and gets out um, at a really good pace, uh, which I appreciate because um, you know there are films out there that maybe overstay their welcome by about ten minutes. This one didn't even feel like they they had to struggle with any sort of pacing in the movie. Um, I I quite appreciate the fact that in the middle of the movie as well, our character ends up. Kind of, 
kind of goes on the run and ends up in Montreal, and then we get this complete change uh, of um, of the dialogue just becomes French, so we get subtitles from that point onwards. Um, well, not all the way through the film, but for the most part, and I really enjoyed that as well because at first I thought um, we're going to get a, a small drop of subtitles, and then we're going to do a a kind of Tarantino uh, Inglorious Bastards where it'll morph into English and it didn't do that it just stuck very true to that you know these are French Canadian characters this is how they would speak and um, I quite dug that as well I thought you know that's a brave move in any film at the half an hour mark to then start putting subtitles for for 20-25 minutes into a movie and expect the audience to go along with it um, and I, I think that shows kind of gumption but at the same time I think it helps the film oh absolutely I think I mean it caught me off guard when it did that I mean it shouldn't have because I knew it was a French Canadian movie mm-hmm. but but when it actually goes into the subtitled part I, I really enjoyed that I mean it was a pretty big chunk of the movie too like at the at the girls school yes and, and I just I felt like it that it was handled professionally where some movies, they, like you said, they, they go in and out mm-hmm. of yeah. what they're speaking. And I thought this one, like it just, it just stuck to its guns and it, and it did that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's for the whole film. I think they've taken what could be a pretty on paper, what is a fairly absurd premise. Um, but actually, actually treated it with a bit of respect and tried to do something a bit different. I think on most levels the film succeeds on that. Um, I really want to spoil this one. So <laughs> um, what we'll do is we'll give our grades just now and then we'll go to talk a bit more why the film got that. So um, we do Netflix rating over here, uh, Johnny. Um, the the rating goes uh, one didn't like it. Uh, sorry, one hated it. Two didn't like it. Three liked it. Four really liked it. And five loved it. What would you grade Disco Path? I would give this a four, a solid four. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that one. Um, this, to me, is a, a real... I really like this film. The fact I've seen it two times since um, is pretty much testament to that. Um, so what we'll do is we will throw up our spoiler tag warning just now. Um, if you want to see where you can come back into this podcast, if you have not seen Discopath yet, um, it is in the iTunes show notes as well as on the website podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com because we are spoiling this movie now. So, uh, tell us a little bit more, Johnny, about um, about actually what happens in this movie. Well, first of all, I, I really like it because <laughs> the movie starts off, the guy is, is working at, uh, you know, he's like a short order cook. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he kind of leads into what's going to happen. It's like a little bit of a... Uh, a peek behind the curtain because he, some guys walk in with a with a ghetto blaster and there's some disco beats going and stuff and he ends up setting the entire grill on fire <laughs> that's right yeah it zones out and then he uh, he gets fired and immediately after this when he the, the one of the things i liked is that he went he's really off like he's not like he's not a normal person when you when you see him and you talk and people talk to him in the movie yeah but people are attracted to him like they he people are like magnetically drawn to him because the first thing that happens is a pretty pretty hot brooklyn chick skates up on her roller skates and uh you know she's all about him and this is where the trouble begins because you know he uh she he gets invited to a disco yeah <laughs> which i mean he in his defense he does try to turn it down about 17 times mm-hmm. and she just won't have it and uh that doesn't end well for her 
<laughs> he cuts her hands off, which I thought was kind of weird. He cuts he cuts her hands off, which yeah, like you say, which is weird. But then the kill sequence for her is absolutely glorious. Like, see, see, when I saw this, because um, she ends up crawling underneath the the glass dance floor. I love um, that. And that, to me, is oh, so visually stunning because you think about films, you think about disco, right? And to me, when I think about disco, I think about, you know, people wearing kind of flared trousers, uh, wearing, the you know, kind of pimp suits. I think of disco balls and I think of glass floors where the lights shine through them and it's different tiles. And um, that's obviously, the, the filmmakers have thought the same thing and they've adapted that into a kill, which I think is... It's the fact the camera, the camera works really good there as well, that we're seeing it from underneath, we're seeing people dance on that, and then we see zooming out from that, her underneath while people are dancing over, bloody, and, oh, I think that's such a brilliant kill. Oh, and it's shot, it's shot so well, like when they, when like you said, when they pan out and you see her beneath them, it's it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, this is the girl that he got invited by, so her roommates and her friends know who this guy is so he's got to flee to canada yeah yeah <laughs> and this this kind of shocked me once because how did it say how long he had been in canada it, it didn't but um through he's obviously been there a wee while because um when we come across the character next he's somehow managed to get a job as like a janitor in uh is it an all-girls school or is it like a boarding school or, or something? I think it was an all-girls school. Yeah, in Canada. Um, and because he can't speak French, um, or we don't know if he can speak French or not, he claims to be deaf. Um, and that's where we join the character. So the, the assumption is that he's been there a wee while, uh, I think, because everyone seems to know who he is. Um, and, you know, the old, he seems to be doing certain things for certain people favour-wise that makes me think that a certain amount of time's passed. Plus, I think the case in New York is, is almost like a cold case at this point. So you would assume that they've done a, a, a thorough investigation, not found what they were looking for. So yeah, they, made, they made it sound like it was a cold case for sure when it actually goes back to New York later. Because yeah. the, the guy that he's telling about the, uh, like his boss or whatever, he's like, he, he tells him that the case is pretty much, you know, dead. And, but, um, one thing about him working at that school and stuff, like I was saying about the, the girl on the roller skates is he's supposedly like the janitor who's like deaf and mute and still like everybody knows him and, and he's got teachers hitting on him and yeah. And, and, and like, to me, there's that presence about him that for some reason people just, you know, they cling to him. Yeah. It's, it's funny because me and you have a, a shared affinity for serial killers, right? I think both of us uh, enjoy the occasional reading of a book uh, to do with psychology and psychopathology, serial killers and things like that. And that tends to be a trait with a lot of serial killers as well, uh, which I think the nail right here is that they're not quite right. You know, that there is something quite suspect, but somehow um, they attract people. And they uh, blend in like yeah. super, super well. Yeah, and I think they nail that very well with this character and that from an outside point of view we watch him and we see that there is something not quite switched on there but like you see everyone that has an interaction with him especially if they're female for whatever reason are drawn to him 
which I think is quite clever. I think they handle that quite well. It makes the character more interesting as well. Oh yeah, and he looks completely different too. He's got darker hair when he goes to when he's working there. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, that confused me, and and maybe you can clear this up because I don't know anything about like hearing aids and stuff like that, but so the hearing aids were to prevent him from hearing. But I yes. I wasn't sure how that worked. Were they kind of like earmuffs on the inside, or I don't know how that. I don't know either, and I don't, I don't actually necessarily know if that was one of the the, the kind of slight gripes I have is I don't even think ear defender technology in the 70s was that way inclined that you could put things in to block out loud sounds like that like he was with like especially in that sort of design I don't think there would have been anything around in the 70s that would have allowed them to do that um which seemed a bit out of place but obviously for the progression of the story he is he's avoiding temptation basically by claiming he is deaf and mute so he is blocking his hearing so he can't hear any sort of popular music um, <laughs> while, while, whilst he's on the run. Um, so yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. I don't think it, it, it clearly explains that at all. I don't think that sort of technology even existed. So it's a slight gripe. But what follows this is pretty fantastic because obviously... Um, it's it's an all-girls school, the girls are getting a bit wild, and um, they make a mistake, Johnny, they they have a small faux pas, which is they start playing loud disco music in the room. Well, and that's the thing too, is they weren't even supposed to be there, so it's right. it because they wanted to sneak off and, um, I guess, make out and scissor all weekend, they, uh, <laughs> they, they, they ended up bringing that fate on themselves. Yep, and um, obviously our, our, our man overhears it, and um, the impulse rises back up in them again. Um, and and like, like you were saying, we don't know how much time's elapsed. We can only assume that in that time he's not killed anyone. And and unfortunately, uh, the teacher also finds this too, and, and she's taken hostage. That's right, yeah. And then we get this really kind of weird kind of turn of events in that we see that he has some sort of lair and <laughs> he's, he, he is quite mad. He is quite mad by this point because he has, um, he's, he's not just killed the girls. He's, uh, he's mutilated them quite savagely. And we get with, this with records. Yeah. With records, which I think is absolutely awesome. It um, was. And one of these things as well that you would never, it's like, it's attention to detail that I think, to me, just makes this film quite endearing. Um, we get his backstory though, right? And uh, I see when you watch films, right? This is the thing when you watch certain horror films, the backstory can be quite convoluted as to why someone is a killer. This one is about as basic as it gets. Um, it's as fairly nonsensical, and it made me laugh so hard. So as a kid, he's sitting in a room, and his dad is is. <laughs> DJing, I can only assume. Uh, I know it's like he's building some kind of like music machine. Yeah, which is just really quite weird. And he's got a drum kit that's all linked up, and he's he's doing things and all the rest, and then dies by electrocution, which is <laughs> what, yeah in front of his son, and because this has happened, his son has this trigger when it comes to music. Um, in particular, disco. That when he hears it, he becomes a homicidal maniac, which is a bit of a stretch. But 
genuinely, I, I thought, it's almost as if the filmmakers are poking fun at other movies where, you know, our killer has to have a backstory, and if he's going to have a backstory, it has to be, you know, slightly related to, to what they're doing, so if, if you know, if our, our stalker killer grew up with, you know, if, if our stalker killer grew up like Norman Bates, for example, with, with mummy issues, he's going to become his mum. When he's killing people, <laughs> uh, I hope I don't have to throw a spoiler alert in there for that one. Uh, but it's um, only like sixty years old. Yeah, it's only sixty years old. Um, but you, you never know. You'd, you'd be surprised some of the emails I get. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, it's kind of like the they, they kind of take that one on the chin as filmmakers and go right. It needs to be kind of music related. Oh well, his dad dies. Try to create some sort of weird music machine in front of him. Which the I thing I liked about funny. that is is that whole flashback sequence. I you you know as horror fans when you watch movies like this that okay so you see him as a child and and you know it's a flashback and his dad's messing with music. I always try to think ahead. I'm like okay so somebody's gonna come murder his dad or something and and it's actually so out of the blue. It looks like his dad sticks sticks his hand into a speaker or something. <laughs> <laughs> It gets electrocuted. That's like, enough enough to set him off. <laughs> yeah, it, it caught me off guard because I was thinking it was going to go that whole, uh, you know, cliche route of some, he witnessed a murder or something. But no, he just witnessed a horrible accident. <laughs> a freak accident. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, above all, a freak accident. So um, our story progresses on. Um, so he's got the teacher captive at this point, And... Um, the, the murders are put out to the press and it just so happens our cop who was investigating things all the way down to New York comes across um, the story in the newspaper and notices similarities so he goes to his chief and tries to convince him that it's the same guy and his chief doesn't believe him, thinks he's obsessed um, and then he manages to kind of sweet talk a week off to go and investigate things up in um, up in Montreal, and uh, I quite like this because it's like your your classic kind of cliched seventies cops, you know, they get the guy getting in to his boss's desk and the boss is behind the, the desk, you know, you can't do this, Grabowski, you need to be, you you, you need to focus on your job, and this guy going, no, chief, I've got this feeling, um, and I, I really I really liked that, and I quite like the cop's character as well, uh, and I, I like this this idea that this case has been so bizarre that this cop hasn't been able to shake it, you know, he's 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 continuing following it, so so he goes to Montreal and uh, jo- Johnny, you can keep going and tell us what what happens next. Well, he gets there and immediately he tries to convince the people investigating because they have, uh, I mean, they have a picture of him and everything. Yes, that's right. And he tries to convince them that, you know, this is the same guy from a case that I was working before. And at first they're pretty hesitant. They don't really want to really get let him get involved. But in the middle of the night, he's randomly watching some disco on TV. <laughs> And it's like a live, like live dance show, like MTV's The Grind or something, or <laughs> Soul Train, and and uh, he sees the guy, like the camera's like focused right on the killer, and so he calls up the the cop, and he's like the lead investigator. He says, "Hey, he's at this club right now," and and that guy doesn't take him seriously at all. No, he's he like, doesn't. He's like, "I'll talk to you in the morning. It, it's fine." And the next day, they they find out a girl was choked out. A bitch was choked out there, and. Um, that was one of the things that I thought was kind of funny because he kind of puts it back in their face. He's like, are you going to believe me next time I tell you? 
That's right, yeah, yeah, he's like, I, you know, I, t- I phoned you, told you last night, you didn't believe me. I love the fact that, you know, of all the of all the things to be flipping through in the telly, you would come across this live dance show, and of all the times to be switching channels, you know, it would have to be the, the one where the guy you're looking for is on the telly. I think that's brilliant, I, I just think, and the fact that no one believes this cop as well, uh, you know, it, it would be him that would be seeing it on the television, it wouldn't be anyone else, it would be him that would have to see that, which I, I quite appreciated as well. You know what was really funny too, is when he was flipping, they kept showing, like, cut uh, like clips of that show he was watching and it and it looked like one of those professional professionally shot like syndicate shows like mm-hmm. the dance shows and you know people were all being shot at angles where they look pretty dancing and stuff and uh then they randomly cut and it's just like his greasy face right there in front of the camera <laughs> it's like do they let some other cameraman in to shoot this and then he just kind of walks off frame he's like yeah, that's right. Just long enough, just long Love enough it. there for the cop to see, and then he's he's off. So yeah, um, so yeah, continue on then. So um, where do we go from there? Well, from this point, like at at this point in the movie, they've already rescued the the teacher, the one teacher who he had captive. He cut all her hair off, and then the other teacher was that her sister? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, her sister. She, I thought it was a dream sequence, but she apparently gets a wild hair in the middle of the night and goes wandering around. And I guess his little uh, lair, his dungeon thing, is still at the school. That's what I thought. I thought it was actually, I thought because he was a janitor, he had some access to some kind of a part of the school which some people didn't know about. Yeah, you because know, he would have like, because he's a janitor, he'd know all about every area in the school. Yeah, and, and that, that's what confused me too, because I thought they scoured the school after the girls were found decapitated. But um, yeah, yeah, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's the place where he swings severed heads naked while he dances to disco records. <laughs> and then, uh, in a surprising turn of events, the girl who he had, the the teacher he had tied to the post that he cut her hair, I expected her to die, but the other teacher, the one that comes in to save her, she gets electrocuted. Yeah, that that was that was a bit. I was, I wasn't expecting that at all. It was one of those ones that that, kind of, that caught me off guard because you're not expecting that at all. And and after this is where the humor really kicks in. I think some of the the humor stuff because they're having the the funeral for for that sister, <laughs> and, and they have the funeral procession. They have the cars, uh, you know, the the hearse and the cars following the police escort, and. I, I'm not sure exactly what happens. Does he like gun it and clip the hearse? Yeah, for some reason, I, I I don't know why he does this at all. This to me seems like really really strange. Um, he decides he's gonna attack the the funeral procession, so he clips he, <laughs> he drives it and smacks. I think he smacks the police car first. And oh, he does. Hit, yeah, yeah. To, to basically try and uh, incapacitate them, then he goes after the the hearse, which he then hits and then the coffin flies out which is really <laughs> i don't know why I, I, I at first i thought it was because he wanted the body but then once he's done that he doesn't seem too concerned about it and the best part is we forgot to mention that he's dressed as a nun and he's got that's and, <laughs> and after he does it he's got this huge fucking shit-eating grin on his face like that's i just right. did that <laughs> and he guns it just floors it 
and the body's oh. laying all mangled on the road. I, for, I forgot all about the fact that he's dressed as a nun. Oh man, that's right. And it is, he seems he's like, because he doesn't, he doesn't show much emotion at all throughout this film, um, other than the moments where he's like reveling and and blood and you know dancing naked. But um, you're right when when he when he hits that car, he has such a shit eating grin on his face. <laughs> it's just like he's so happy that he's he's knocked a police car and knocked the 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 coffin out. Um, and it's like you see, he's just like, oh, my my work here's done. I'm quite happy. Off. Um, so yeah, as. The, yeah, yeah, at that point he was almost like a spree killer. Like he just, <laughs> he just yeah. lost his mind completely. It totally has, totally has. I mean, I say this after he, you know, shanked two girls with a bunch of forty fives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, he lost it a little bit earlier, but this this is the point where he just had that final snap in his brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he goes, he goes on the run at this point. Um, that that this is where he loses his car, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and he he has some sort of costume, like plain clothes costume underneath the nun's robe, which he changes out of, and then he makes a runner for it, and then he has a cop chasing after him. And that's the finale, right, where they go to the roof? That's right, yeah. And this, the ending kind of confused me a little bit. I don't know if he had like a, (laughs) just a random, like, surrogate body, but he, they, they show him... Does he jump to his death or does he get shot? I think he jumps, right? He jumps to he jumps to his death. He, essentially, the the New York police officer um, is trying to chase after him, and we have the the Montreal cop. But um, in classic fashion, the the New York police officer is portrayed to be maybe not as necessarily in the best of shapes. So he kind of struggles. <laughs> he struggles to catch up. So he's at the bottom of this. Um, I think the Americans call it a car lot we call it a car park um, and it, he runs up the top and the, the police officer kind of wants him to surrender and he jumps off and uh, we then get the the image of the police officer waiting down and then the body going splat um, and obviously the New York cop shouting up to the, the his, uh, his comrade that it's all over and um that's where we think the film finishes. Like, that's what you think the, the the ending is. And to me, it's like, oh, well, he did all these murders and then he took his own life so the cops couldn't get him, which is a very unslasher sort of ending to a film. I don't know what made me think that would be the ending to this film. Um, I know. I, I don't know why. I just assumed, like, when that happened, I was just like, oh, that's the end of that film. Yeah, I kind of went with it too at first. Yeah, I, I, but then we get this fantastic scene and he's... he's uh, as the credits roll, um, the camera then pans up and we find out that he's still alive and when he's jumped off, he's landed on... What do you call those things he's landed on? I think it's like a scaffolding or something. Or yeah. Like for window washers. That's it, yeah. It's like one of those electronic ones, the ones that move up and down um, using like the, the hydraulics and stuff. So he's, he's landed on that one and he's very much alive. So the police officers think they've got him but it's actually a decoy that he's thrown off kind of alluding to the fact that there could possibly be a sequel which is in the great tradition of slasher films and that's the end of the movie um so yeah i I mean it does it really is i think things that the film does really well is that i really enjoy the kill sequences i think they are that we're talking about we were talking off here actually about uh 
practical effects in comparison to kind of CGI. And this is, to the best of my knowledge, this was all practical, which I appreciate um, immensely. And um, so I love the kill sequences. I really like him as a killer as well. I think he's quite, he's not the usual sort of slasher villain we're used to. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, one thing I liked about the gore effects in this is, like, they were so over the top. Like, the uh, when he, at the end, where I guess he throws the actual window washer onto the ground or something. It must be. He must have, he must have set that up. I think I think that's maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe, if, if we're looking at it from an outside point of view, maybe that's why he attacks the, the police convoy then, is to get them to chase him so he can fake his own death. But that body on the ground is... Man, that is some brute. That's some brutal gore. Oh yeah, that's 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 glorious. That's absolute glorious. Um, and um, I, I mean, we were talking earlier on about how it's shot as well, about how it has a kind of almost authentic sort of exploitation feel about it. Um, and that to me just assists the film completely. I think it just completely makes the film feel that bit more genuine. Well, and it really absolutely did. I mean, that's the thing is I almost kind of lost myself in the movie thinking it was older. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that surprised me is they um, when they showed, I guess a lot of it was probably done with computer animation, but when they showed like the skylines and stuff of the cities, they had the old 70s version of the skylines, which I thought was pretty cool how they superimposed that. All right. I didn't notice that, actually. Like in New York, they showed the Twin Towers up and everything. I never, you know, I never actually seen that three times, and that never even clicked with me once. Because that, that was something I looked for. Because they were in New York City, and they showed the skyline. I was like, oh well, they got to get that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And they See, did. They go. they did it when they're when he's on the bus going to the roller to the with the roller girl. Right, and you can see that. I see when I watch that back again, I'll be focusing right on that. I'll probably pause that, but now that you've said that, because it, like you say, that would be something obviously that would take you right out of the the movie if it if you know if you noticed that that they weren't there yeah absolutely and and that's that's the attention to detail they had in this i i appreciated that because i mean uh like you said it's shot really well i mean everything looks really good and stuff but there's the little things like that where i was like wow they they really thought about it that like even everybody they were supposed to be in brooklyn they even had that like regional Bro- brooklyn accent yeah yeah that was i, I mean that was um I mean, because my geography is, is pretty bad, but Canada, well, the border of Canada is quite close to New York State, isn't it? It is. It's right, I think it's right there, Buffalo, or... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's up that way. It's Buffalo, now you're across into things like Toronto and stuff like that. Um, I think that's really... I think it's obviously, because it's a Canadian... It's, it's purely Canadian, isn't it? It's a Canadian movie. I think um, they've just shot some of it in America. Yeah, I think everybody that I looked up, everybody was a uh, uh, Cana- Canadian native. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty cool as well because, I mean, it's very easy for films, it's very easy for horror films in general that if you want to pretend your film's in a different location to do it quite shoddily and use kind of stock footage or maybe not pay attention to dialect or like you were saying, skyline or things like that. And the fact that they have paid that attention to the, those minuscule sort of things uh, that that attention to detail benefits film overall as a movie. Well, there were a lot of things too I was paying attention to. I mean, I'm kind of a dork that way, <laughs> but <laughs> but I was looking at all the cars, all the everything surrounding it, just to see like how good they did. And they, I mean, there's nothing that I could tell that was 
even out of that decade. Like it, they seem to really stick with it pretty well. I mean, they even had, like I said at the beginning, that Ghetto Blaster Boombox that was popular, like in the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. So and, and uh, those got to be hard to find. <laughs> Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, the props were pretty cool as well. The the, the dress looked authentic as well. Um, and like you say, the the way because it's it's set in the seventies, it has that kind of exploitation feel to the the color tones and stuff like that on the screen. I think they handle that really well. Um, do you have a favorite kill in the movie at all? Honestly, um, I'm trying to think of favorite kill. I would say as. The, the one we talked about under underneath the disco floor is pretty it's my good. favorite yeah that's my favorite as well just because i i think it's so clever and um to me that that i wouldn't have thought you know just sitting thinking about a, you know a film based around the fact that you know uh, disco and a serial killer or a slasher movie um that wouldn't necessarily whilst i think it's an iconic image that sort of flow it wouldn't necessarily be something i would think to use in a movie uh, as I set in the location for a kill sequence, um, and the fact that they did that uh, and they did it really well uh, is one of to me. It's one of the standout sequences in the movie um, that I just think everything about it works. So, yeah. Is there anything else you want to uh, talk about this film before we take a quick break and come back with our our second movie? No. The one one quick thing uh, I, I was want to touch on is I liked that they changed up to how they did the kills because. In the first sequence, it just they find her dead the next day, and then mm-hmm. he gets flashbacks, you know, of how it all happened. And I was thinking, I hope they don't do it the whole movie like this. Like, I hope they actually show stuff kind of happening almost like in real time. And yeah. so, so later they correct that, they fix that. And when he kills the two girls in the room, he, you know, it, it doesn't even show him really kill them, but it shows the aftermath. And you, you, you saw him go in there and uh, attack. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would agree with that as well. It's, um, it's kind of building it up. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not. Um, the film's not blowing its wad straight away at the beginning by showing you this really brutal death. It's like you say the flashbacks of the character thinking back about what he's done. Um, it's quite a clever retouch, actually. It's you know, it's 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 not it's not going in ham fisted trying to say you know this is a slasher film. Here is gore. Um, it's quite clever how they did that, and like you say, as the film progresses on, and the 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 brutality of the character progresses well, much like a lot of serial killers do. Um, I, I quite like that as well as it as it goes on, and and by the end, I mean he's he, he is a madman. By the end, he's he's kind of crossed over over the void. Yeah, and I I really like that. I mean, it's you do see that progression that you, you were talking about with like a uh, real sociopaths. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, we're, we're gonna well, hopefully, from from what we've said, we have piqued your interest to check out Disco Path. Um, I I think well, two fours that pretty much that pretty much is a strong recommendation. Um, and uh, if you guys check it out um, and uh, or have already seen it, and you want to give us an opinion on it, um, you can always do that on the Facebook page. If you're not a member of our Facebook page yet. Um, go to Facebook and in the top bar type in Podcast Under the Stairs, come across to the closed group and leave your opinions and thoughts of the movie. Um, I'd be quite interested to check that out. Because uh, this one, like I say, I only heard about it recently. Um, I'd never heard of it before you mentioned it. You hadn't, no? Not at all. Not I mean, nothing. Well, there you go. I think from what I gather, um, it apparently has been out in the UK since last year. Um, which surprises me that I hadn't heard it. And it surprises me even more that an American had to tell me that it was out um, when, you know, it's uh, 
I, I mean, I follow quite a lot of the, the magazines and stuff like that over here that even if it has been released in November over here, it's not been in a, it's not been in any magazines or anything that I've read, so, or internet pages or that, so, um, yeah, so that was, that was Disco Path. So, we're going to take a quick break, um, you're going to hear the trailer for uh, our second review, uh, which is 2014's Stage Fright, and we will be right back to talk about the film right after this. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. Warning, the Midnight Horror Show is not safe for work and is definitely not for the faint of heart. The following is a small sample of what you'll hear live every Wednesday night at 7 at allradiox.com. I ain't heard from you shitheads for fucking years. Now, Webula, we do this thing that's called a live radio show on the internet. And so there's people that interact with us. Yeah, they're listening and responding to us right now in real time. Who, who, who's talking shit? <laughs> Somebody's talking shit? Someone named Fuckface. And so they, Fuck you, Fuckface. <laughs> oh, you think we'll go off on tangents? <laughs> on the Midnight Horror Have show? you ever listened to this show before, Mark? <laughs> he was masturbating into the, the corpse of a fucking beheaded fish. Fucking uh, nasty motherfucker. <laughs> we're going to end the show on corpse fucking this time, apparently. Anytime you talk about necophilia, you're talking... It's going to take a certain kind of person to watch it. Yes, it's a charmed life. Fuck you. <laughs> you can hear the Midnight Horror Show live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday night at allradiox.com or download the show on iTunes, Podomatic, or at the allradiox.com page. All of life's a song to sing, so sing with all your heart. I have to get dressed. We can't do this now. Be safe. Preparing for opening nights. Rehearse all day. It's almost imperfectly right. Welcome to Limelight. I think about mom a lot. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. You actually want to compete with those theater geeks? Those kids aren't normal, Cam. Party will be announcing this summer's Limelight production. Passing of the Opera! Your mother's role. She would be proud. Who can tell me what Japanese tradition involves covering your face all in white? Bukaki. Kabuki? There has been an accident. Maybe there's somebody out there that really doesn't want him to put on this play. Cam, do you think this is connected to your mom? Isn't it wrong to sing and dance when someone just died? And welcome back. You've just heard the trailer for 2014's Stage Fright. Um, so let me give you some information on this movie. It was directed by uh, Jerome Sable, who also did the screenplay and apparently the music and lyrics. 
So, guy's pretty talented. Um, I was saying to Johnny off air that I caught this guy's um, short movie, The Legend of Beaver Dam, a couple of years ago at a festival. Um, and it's a musical short, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought I had a particular sense of humour about it that it does not surprise me that his first feature length is a horror musical. Um, the synopsis of this movie is a snobby music uh, sorry, a snobby musical theatre camp is terrorised by a bloodthirsty killer who hates musical theatre. Um, which uh, isn't actually accurate, thanks IMDB. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of short change in the film quite a wee bit there. Um, so, like like you were saying earlier on, Johnny, we, we touched upon this before. Um, there's a, I, I heard a lot of bad things about this movie uh, before, I, before I checked out from kind of a lot of the podcast alumni out there, um, as well as just general reviews. Uh, I think when it first started doing the festival circuit, this film was praised quite heavily. Um... And I don't know if it just raised the expectations or um, it put a false image or idea of what this film was actually like out to people that when they saw it, they reacted badly to it. Um, I saw this one a good couple of months ago uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead of the gun here, but um, I've been trying to find someone to chat about this film with me for a wee while now. Uh, so I am very happy that you've you've agreed to, to do the review with me. Dude, I'm, like, super stoked to talk about this one, man. Like, real excited. This yeah. is a movie that I'm the same way. Like, I, I saw the trailer for it, and it looked fucking... I thought it looked fucking amazing. And then everybody was coming out saying, well, this movie sucks and stuff. And I, I was wondering how a trailer could look so good and the movie's so bad. Definitely. And uh, when I watched it, I was like, well, you could tell from the first ten minutes of the movie that the movie has a certain tone and a certain sense of humor and like levity about it that you're either going to be on board with or you're not. Yeah, definitely. De- right I, from, right from the opening, the kind of opening camp song. If you're not on board with that film there, then you should just switch off. Absolutely. Because I, I think if you, if you can't get on board at that point, you probably won't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's probably where a lot of people, I don't know. I haven't read a lot, a lot of the reviews, but I don't know where the complaints come in because, um, the movie it doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, obviously, it's a movie. It's 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 a musical. I mean, these people. It's one of those movies where there's not a band playing. It's just people breaking into song and dance. Yeah, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to swallow. Just because, yeah. you know, especially slasher fans and horror fans, because they're not used to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe more, you know, as much as someone who watches like Rent or something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's the thing, um, and obviously we're going to do non-spoiler review at the start. Uh, we'll do our reviews, and then we'll we'll go into to some spoilers here. Um, the main criticisms that I that I have picked up from people are things that I don't necessarily think are bad in this movie, and or not things that slasher films in general as like a general whole, are not indicative of. So um, one of the big accusations is that um, it's pretty obvious who the killer is. Um, And I would agree with that, but I've seen tons of films that are slasher movies that within first 10, 15 minutes have an idea who the killer is. That doesn't spoil... It doesn't spoil my enjoyment for the movie because I want to see how that will unfold further on. Um, I mean... 
the the other accusation which was flung against it was that the movie is a bit silly. But then again, like we said, from that opening song in the camp you know what the, the, the sense of humour is for the movie and it sticks very much within that wheelhouse. So once again, I don't knock it as a negative against the movie. That's kind of what it's aiming for and that's it's set in a, it's set in a, like a, a musical summer camp. It's basically set in band camp. That's what it is, but for, for, for singers, uh, you know, that are going to put on a, a play, a, a performance, musical theatre. Um, and there's a certain... There's a certain stereotype sense of humour that is kind of put across to people that do that sort of stuff. And I think that film kind of captures it, and I think it captures it really well. Um, I think, and I'll go on record, as slasher films go this year, I think I'm going to struggle to see one that looks as gorgeous as this movie. This movie is shot so beautifully, I think the visuals and the colours are so vibrant. Um that to me I think I really like it. I love the fact that the killer in this one, whenever the killer is on screen, we get metal. Love um, it, dude. Love yeah, it. It's like uh, his voice his voice is almost like Dio or something, man. Yeah, it's like, like Dio. He, he, it's he's like, just wailing. It's like Dio meets Axel Rose. You know, like That's some, so funny you say that because I thought Axel Rose too at one part because he did that kind of like yeah. <laughs> still like, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I love the fact that it's, it's it's complete juxtaposition between the kind of very happy theater camp songs and then our, our killer by you know slasher films are, are intrinsically linked with metal. Uh, or rock, I think that's just a cultural thing that's grown up with, and this one doesn't shy away from it at all, in fact it embraces it, so our, our killer in this one plays guitar um, and and sings metal and I think that's fucking awesome um, the, the look of the mask as well the fact he's dressed uh, wearing a Japanese kabuki mask uh, and there's a joke in that we'll come to later on which I, I cracks me up every time I hear it <laughs> um, but the, the kind of sinister, almost kind of corpse paint Kabuki mask is. It's got is, the movable mouth too. Yeah, it's cool as fuck, man. It's absolutely cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a slasher movie, so we kind of want not like Discopath where our killer didn't have a mask, but in this one, it kind of it, it goes for the idea that you know our killers wear masks and all the rest. But I think it creates quite a memorable character. And I quite like that. The film has fucking meatloaf in it. I didn't do a cast listing, so I'm going to do that just now. So, um, the film stars Minnie Driver, um, has Meatloaf, the mighty Meatloaf, um, Ali McDonald, Douglas Smith, Kent Nolan, Brandon Uranowitz, uh, Ephraim Ellis, and a bunch of other people, uh, which I'm not going to go into. But it has Meatloaf in this film, and Meatloaf's fucking... Meatloaf's the boss, man. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and he's he's playing Meatloaf in this movie, which I think is great. Um, and even Minnie Driver, even like someone of the... I don't know how much stock Minnie Driver has anymore um, in terms of being an A-list actress, but the fact that she's in it as well is cool as fuck. I, I, I appreciate that even, that, even though she's only in it at the start. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm just talking about the film in general. Like I say, I think it's beautifully shot. I think the soundtrack's excellent. I think it has a certain sense of humour that appeals to me. I think the killer looks pretty fucking cool. I love the the use of practical gore effects. Um, yeah, I, I I think this is a really enjoyable movie. What about you, Johnny? I, I The first thing I did when this movie ended was I tried looking for the soundtrack, which I couldn't yeah. find. It's not out yet, which is gotten. Yeah, because I would really like... I would buy this. I mean, even the, the like, the... the 
super goofy songs that the campers sing and stuff. Like I thought it was a lot of fun and, and the way it was, you know, thrown together, especially getting me to sing again. Cause yeah. he's, he said the only time he would ever sing on film again was when he did uh, tenacious D in the pick of destiny for his daughters. That's right. That's right. And to see him come back and do this, is like pretty cool. Cause I'm like, Hey, he, he's actually doing something again, you know, think, on, on film. Yeah, I think on, uh, on the credits as well. I think he does some of the metal songs. I think his voice has got effects on it, but I think he does some of the, the singing voice. I may be wrong about that, but... I, I could see that, because there were some times where it, it, I was thinking it was his voice, but I was like, no, I said, because the killer's not as stalky as Meatloaf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, like, because we will we'll, we'll jump into a, a wee bit of spoiler, but um, I think, I, I, I mean, if, if you were like me anyway, you picked up who the killer was pretty quick. Um in this movie but I don't like I said before I don't necessarily think that's detrimental to the enjoyment of the movie um, so so I so what other things did you I mean what did you make of the, the kind of practical gore oh it was awesome the, the, I mean like like you said earlier many, many drivers not in the movie very long mm-hmm. um, immediately once she's done singing and, and the the what is the play called is, is terror at the opera or no um, it's the haunting haunting an opera uh, oh that's what it is and it's kind of like a take on uh, Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as she's done performing, she goes into her dressing room. And I made the comment to my girlfriend whenever you know, see her you see her in her bra and panties. I said, man, I just remember why I like Minnie Driver. <laughs> and my girlfriend my girlfriend said, man, she still looks the same now, too. And I said, I know, right? And yeah. she, she didn't think the movie was newer. Like, she thought that was her from back in the day. And I said, no, this is new. This is what she looks like now. So she really mm-hmm. hasn't aged at all. Yeah, she's not aged much since. Uh, she still looks very similar to how she did in uh, like Gross Point Plank, for example. Oh yeah, she she almost looks exactly the same age, which is pretty freaky. Yeah, because she's. I mean, she's a good twenty years older. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing, though, back to your question about the practical effects, the second the, the killer comes in there and stabs her in the throat and just keeps going, mm-hmm. that set the tone for the effects in this movie. That, that was awesome. That was like Argento stabs. Definitely, yeah. It was just, it was beautiful. And then when they pull away and her body hits the floor, like she's got something sticking out of her mouth. So I think he stabbed her in the mouth too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he's, he went there as well, which uh, which is which is really cool as well. And I, I think, um, like you were saying, the, like Argento, obviously, Argento's influenced by Hammer. That's, you know, he, he loves the, the look of the blood. So the blood's a very vibrant color. And you've, you've hit the nail directly on the head. That's what you get in this. The blood is that kind of really bright, almost theatrical sort of red which kind of ties in with the fact that they're in you know a musical camp or they're in theater at that stage you know it's all about performance um i think that totally fits in with that as well and it ties in with the end too with something we'll get to later with the uh the mixture of paint and blood yes yes and very much so. nobody can tell the difference yeah that's it yeah definitely so um a- any other things that you want to talk about uh before we we grade and and do uh some spoilers uh no because i think a lot of this movie you kind of have to spoil to i mean and like like we said before like it's not something that'll take away from like watching oh like, definitely the, the, not the value of it because i mean i'm gonna watch this many more times yeah definitely I, I'm, I'm just waiting to find out when it's getting a, a blu-ray release over here so i can go and pick it up um, and well, i didn't think it was I, I didn't even think it was out over here yet and apparently um i looked it up and it came out last week here in america so i guess it's it just come out yeah, uh, that's right. Um, I I caught Mings on uh, it was on VOD, 
a while ago, and it which seemed quite strange to me that uh, you know that it appeared on VOD before it appeared on you know any channel where you're able to buy it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. That, to me, that those things tend to go hand in hand now. So the fact that it did that seemed quite strange. Um, but yeah, so so following the Netflix rating, um, I'll go first this time. This film to me is a four and a half at five, um, and it's not it's not quite a. Oh, is it? No, I loved this film. It's a five. Sorry, I gave this film a five. I loved it. Yeah, I gave it a five also, man. Yeah, like, I, I this movie was solid. Like when this movie was over, the first thing I wanted to do was look up everything about it and listen to the music again. Like it 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 got me excited about slashers potentially coming back and being fun. Yeah, def- that's the thing. That's the, the spirit of this movie, above all, is fun. Um, and I think if if you can roll with that, if you can get on board with that right from the start, then you're going to enjoy this movie right through. But if if you, you find yourself being irritated by things near the beginning of this movie, it's like, you, it's like we said earlier on, you reach for the stop button because the film doesn't change its tact from that point onwards. It pretty much follows it. So, um, so we'll do some spoilers. So, like I said earlier on, um, if you want to know when to come back and if you have not seen Stage Fright yet, uh, you don't want it spoiled by us, then check the timecode listing on iTunes, or you can go straight over to the website, which is podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com, because we're spoiling this movie as of now. So the film opens with um, Minnie Driver, who is performing this haunting of the the opera, um, and she um, the the production is done by Meatloaf, uh, who I think is the she's got two kids it's a son and a daughter meatloaf's the stepfather i think is that right yep they say it later in the movie because uh the son when he's older says he's not even a real father and uh that's right there's some kind of tension there yeah so so basically we have mini driver finishing her performance it's brilliant it brought the house down she's going to be well received and all the rest and she's back in our dressing room and her kids come through and she's a bit of chat with them and all the rest sign something for our daughter and our daughter goes out to perform and um the the phantom appears behind her uh wearing the mask um and I don't know if we can we'll call him the Phantom. Uh, appears behind her wearing the mask and she thinks she knows who it is. Um but she is then murdered by the person wearing the mask. So we jump forward however many years, ten years I think it is, um and we are now in a, a musical camp which is run by Meatloaf and Meatloaf has taken the two kids with him and they now work in the kitchen as staff for the uh, for the the musical camp, and uh, we have the the kids arriving, and we get this absolutely fantastic opening number, which oh, <laughs> just made me laugh honestly. Uh, so I'm gay, I'm yeah, gay, <laughs> I'm gay, but not that way. As if I had to go through that, but then actually a gay character comes on, and he's like, you know, I'm gay, I'm gay, in that <laughs> way. Um, and I just think that's brilliant. And but the, this film nods to so many things. So one of the girls in the group looks like Liza Minnelli. Oh yeah, she totally does. We I called that out right away. The the one that's part of the main three girls. Yeah, so so instantly they're they're kind of wink wink nudge nudge, you know, musical theater, um, which I appreciate straight away. So we have all these people arriving, and they're going to be putting on this show that Meatloaf's very excited about. The two, the boyfriend, uh, sorry, the boy and the uh, sister are in the kitchen. They're getting a bit rough with each other, and they make a mess. Um, 
and uh, this is after they found out that the presentation, the show that they're going to be putting on this year, that Meatloaf's very excited about because he believes this is going to get him back to New York and back to Broadway and back to the big time, is that they're going to do the famous play in which the mother had died in, Mini Driver basically, so they're doing The Haunting of the Phantom. Um, and this really obnoxious prick is the is the guy that's going to be doing the... the he's going to be directing it, one of the kids... And he's, he's he loves himself, and um, he uh, basically he's going to be doing auditions and all the rest. So our our main our main heroine, the daughter, uh, whose name was uh, Camilla, uh, she uh, decides that she's going to try and audition for it. But being a, a a worker on the Grimms pretty much prohibits her from doing that. Plus, Meatloaf doesn't really want her involved, um, and so she manages to sneak in and uh, do the audition and the the guy Artie I think his name is that's the the guy that's uh, the director is taken back by her, her performance uh, obviously sees something in her other than the fact that he's he f- thinks he can manipulate her um, he he likes her and so she manages to get an audition um, so it's her and a, a girl with red hair whose name escapes me are up for this part but meanwhile, we find out that they're going to be taking a different take on it, so it's going to be set in feudal Japan, which, is, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. And then we get just this, this is what I mean about the sense of humour. You either get the sense of humour and you'll roll with it or you won't. And I love it, he says, you know, what's the, the Japanese tradition of, uh, you know, having your face covered in white? And the guy says, bukake, like that. <laughs> I was like, yes. And then the girl at the back's like, uh, kabuki? So we find that, you know, it's this kabuki mask. And um, meanwhile, while this is happening, we're getting clips of like a, a kind of basement area with all the different kids' uh, pictures on the wall. And we've, we're got this kind of, we're getting like a, we get metal playing, which is fucking awesome. Um, and it's proper metal. It's not fake metal. It's no like TV movie metal. This is like proper metal. And uh, our killer's like, you know, he's angry, but we don't get to see him. So we're kind of carrying on, and I, I, I'll be jumping over certain things, like over certain performances and songs and things like that, um, that we end up in this position where the the arty character um, is basically manipulating the two girls into, he, he basically wants, he wants to have sex, so uh, whichever one's prepared to go the furthest with him is the one that's likely that's going to get the part, which is a bit of a douche move. Oh, he's um, a douchebag. He really is. And from, from the moment he starts doing all that shit, I'm like that. I hope you die in a satisfying way. And by God, this film delivers it. Um, and it makes me happy. Uh, he's the first to go, yeah. Yeah, he is the very first one. Because we're quite a bit into this movie before, other than the opening sequence of the kill, we're quite a bit into the movie before we get that kill. So, yeah, it, it's, it's on the final day of camp, yeah. Yeah, so it, it jumps through, basically gives a, a, a countdown to the performances. So we, we're, we're jumping down there and all the rest, and we, you know, we're going through several shades of Artie being an ass. Um, meanwhile, we have we are kind of directed to two different characters. We're directed to the groundskeeper, who looks generally sinister, and whenever the camera spins around him, it gets quite ominous, and he's usually got a pair of scissors in his hand, or he's doing something, he's holding some sort of weapon, and that's like to try and misdirect us. Um, the other one is the guy who, the young guy who's clearly obsessed 
think his name's uh, oh his name escapes me but he's <laughs> the one that let um, Camilla in for the audition and he's he he's in love with her but I think his name she, is Joel I want to say Joel Joel right um, and you know she does not see it is Joel you're right uh, she does not see she's not paying any attention to him because she's too committed to doing this role because she sees this as an opportunity to take the big time and move out and all, all the rest so then we fast forward to one day well, it's the day, night before the performance and um, I think at this point Camilla understands that the only way she's going to get this role is she's going to need to she's going to need to do something with Artie but halfway through the deed decides that she's she's not ready for this um, she doesn't want it and um, she kind of storms out and uh, then we get this kill sequence. So, Johnny, you can talk us through this kill because it's fucking brilliant. Oh, I love it. Like, immediately, he runs into the killer in the kabuki mask. And I, what does he use to pin his foot to the ground? It's like he drops a stage light down. Oh, that's, it, what it, that's what it is. It's a hook from the stage light. Yeah, and it, it goes right through his foot and traps his foot to the ground. I love it. And then uh, he says, break a leg and shoves him over and his, his uh, foot becomes detached. And then, oh, yeah, <laughs> the best part is, is this douchebag. He's like he, he see. And this is dumb to me, but it's funny at the same time is because he sees prop swords on the side of the stage. And he, <laughs> and he sees it as like, this is my fucking salvation. Of course, though, they're not going to be real. They're prop swords. <laughs> but he crawls over there, sticks his hands in this chest of prop swords and the killer severs his hands with the lid just and uh i don't remember how he ends up killing him after it's, that. it's, it's a light bulb he, he, he grabs him and carries him over to it's oh, like a, yeah. a, a stage light and this is fucking brilliant he basically makes him eat the light bulb and then like smashes his head but the, the heat from the light bulb so intense that it melts the guy's cheeks yeah that was I, cool. and the, Oh man, such a fucking satisfying kill, and that's what and you know he's he's doing the killer's doing his one liners, it's like you're saying, uh, you know, uh, and all the rest, but it's just it's just so fucking mean, and it, to me it's it's a great. I mean, we've been waiting for a kill. We're not getting small kills in between. The first kill we get after after Mini Driver dies is an intense fucking. You know, it's really 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 well shot, and it's a really nasty kill um so and what what i meant to say about this film is and uh, uh, there's three specific examples be interesting to see if you picked up on all three that i picked up because i think there might be more johnny but um what this what this say uh, this film does is it nods to other horror films like it op- openly blatantly nods to other horror films so you were talking about the red paint um oh, and, yeah. the, and the rafters is carrie right there's the 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 girl that ends up with all the nails in her head which pinhead. is which is pinhead? Did you pick up on there's the 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 kind of small fat boy um, who has the 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 kind of saw for the wood? Yes, is he does wa- the Leatherface dance. He does Leatherface's dance, and I, I'm like that when I'm watching that. I'm like, this is so fucking cool because it's it's all nods, it's all nods to horror fans out there that you know, it. it it's it's and it's all done in a really fun way. I think that's what what I appreciate about it the most is the fact that it's all done 
in such a really, really kind of cool way that it's all just snapshots of things from, or characters from other horror films, which I really like. So, um, that little kid did that perfectly too. He really did. It was like, I mean, that is more, uh, that was what my attention was attracted to before I thought, oh, he's holding a buzzsaw in his hand. Um, I was more just like that. He's dancing like Leatherface. Oh, it's because he's got a saw in his hand. Um, so, yeah, so um, Artie's dead. If you want to continue on with, with what happens after that. After this, it's um, it's kind of a blur because they all start dying. But I know the uh, the guy who's playing the Phantom in the uh, actual – well, not the, not the Phantom, but the guy who's playing well, yeah, the – Yeah, we'll, we'll call him the Phantom. It's like, yeah. He ends up uh, finally coming out of the closet and kissing the gay stagehand, stage director dude. Yeah. And as soon as he runs backstage to do a quick costume change, she finds the girl with all the nails in her head and ends up getting killed by the killer. And I don't remember how he got it either. Um, he got the... Does the killer not have... Right, get this right. Does the killer oh, not have... I think it's... No, it's not that. I'm, I was thinking he of has the, has, I thought he has... Because he has these really weird modified weapons which look like buzzsaw blades with hands and i thought he got killed with them i thought he got stabbed with them i think you're right that's what i was gonna say originally yeah and then my favorite i think my favorite kill in the entire movie though besides you know the director is actually right after this the the there's this one girl my girlfriend thought she was annoying but i thought she was funny was the girl who's telling her how to warm up her vocal cords yeah 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 and she goes into the uh, the steamy uh, shower room, and she's in there warming up, doing these like really obnoxious warm ups. And the killer runs in, and I, I don't even remember what he says, but uh, he he just starts smashing her around this bathroom. Yeah, he holds her head under, under the scalding water first, um, and then just just starts ragdolling her. Um, oh, it's awesome! And of course, uh, what's happened is that we now we now have a live show that's happening, so we're full into production and. Um, Camilla looks stunning, by the way. See oh, when yeah. She, oh, see, when she comes out in that, it's like a corset top. Um, and, and her tits look amazing. Oh, sorry, her titties look they amazing. amazing. They really, really did. And the makeup, though, that's, that's what I mean about the visual aspect about this movie, is all the visuals, they, they go for... The, the killer is dressed primarily in black with, you know, like the, the very sinister sort of you know, metal sort of mask. Um, but all the visuals after that, all the visuals of all the characters, uh, especially Camilla's character, who has these two large um, red triangles painted on her face, uh, which is just visually quite stunning. And later on, it kind of ties into, you just everyone's got white face paint on. And um, this big time critic's in the crowd. He's been called in to check out this performance. Um, and I love the fact that while all this anarchy's happening in the background, Camilla is doing her big song to the point where the, our phantom killer is supposed to reveal himself. But he's now dead. And no one shows up. Meanwhile, that, that girl who was also vying for uh, the, the kind of lead role has set up this Carrie-esque bucket of red paint above her, which she's ready to dump on her. Meanwhile, our killer appears to, to drag her off. And then she's, you know, she's kind of singing. And so she goes off the stage and we get someone dressed up. Who I can't remember who. Someone's dressed up like the... It's her. It's actually the girl he just uh, with the red paint. That's right. That's right. He ties her up, puts her in the mask, and then pushes her on stage. And uh, we get this lovely scene where she's kind of 
standing on stage, shumble about the place, and people think it's part of the act, think it's a comedy, and the the kind of the, the the gay kind of stage guy like that starts signalling to the, <laughs> the 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 conductor, you know, play, get them to play music, and of course he's like doing some hand signals, and for some reason when he starts doing that, the the kid playing the 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 Glockenspiel starts playing. So he's like, no, no, no. So he tries to tell him no, but when he's moved it, so the kid starts playing Lord Notes and Time with it, which I think <laughs> is just fucking brilliant. Um, and then they end up playing, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, it's a classical piece of music, but they end up starting doing that. And then before we know it, this guy, this kind of, the, the gay stage guy, who has said that he will, he's a mean guy backstage, but he will not go on stage, got stage fright. Um, he goes on stage and realises that he actually quite likes being in the limelight, so he starts doing all these weird kind of dances with that character. Meanwhile, we jump back, and um, by this point, uh, Camilla's trying to find what's going on, and she's running in the background, and uh, Meatloaf uh, is out and about trying to, I think he's trying to find uh, one of his characters as well, and he's attacked by the, 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 the Phantom, who drags him off into the kitchen uh, whilst whilst singing awesome metal again uh, he's like really quite menacing sort of vocals and I love it and um, Camilla arrives uh, and we take the mask off and we find that it's our brother which like I say is no big surprise because our brother's never there when the Phantom's there and plus he's modified weapons which I originally thought were buzzsaws if you look at them they're actually the lids of those big cans of tomato puree or whatever it was sauce that oh, we're using okay. yeah which he's carved into them they're not buzzsaws as such because they're not thick enough to be buzzsaws they're basically modified versions of them so that's another hint that it's him um, and you know he reveals himself uh, you know as the killer he's been revealed and he basically tells him that it was Meatloaf that killed Minnie Driver and it's because Meatloaf found out that I keep calling him Meatloaf because that's I refuse to call him <laughs> anything else except Meatloaf he found out that Minnie Driver was having an affair and so he basically kills her and then he threatens the kid in a quite horrible way and I tell you right now that slap to the face of that child and the flashback looks real he did like if two I, or three times. Yeah, if I did not know better, I would say that Meatloaf slapped a kid three times on camera, which in some respects makes him a bit of a hero because uh, he got away with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, so he, he will go through this whole thing where we're getting you know more of the backstory and she's trying to. But, but meanwhile, and I skipped over this, and I, I can't believe I skipped over how awesome this is. When the killer has Meatloaf tied up, he then produces an electric guitar, which he then puts a knife in as... What do you call those things where you basically put... It's like a clip over to change the tuning. Oh, it's a it's a, um, a capo. Right, so it, it's kind of uses a knife as an equivalent of that, I think. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if that's what it's used for. I, I, this... I think that's what it looked like he did. The thing I really liked about that, though, is... I'm glad, I'm glad you came back to that, is... When Meatloaf's tied up, the, the killer's playing the guitar and he like comes over there with a knife and he pulls the knife out like he's going to stab Meatloaf and Meatloaf yeah. jumps back and then he sticks it in the guitar and starts shredding, man. Just starts oh, fucking wailing. <laughs> starts cutting it off on the guitar. And it is, it is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's everything you want from this killer. It's everything you want from a, a kind of horror musical um, is that, you know, your killer's badass and he's, you know, he can shred guitar and all the rest. And um, so we're, we're, we're kind of having, meanwhile on stage, the, the we're kind of running out of ideas of what to do with the, 
the, the song. They've changed songs a couple of times. The crowd are getting a wee bit, you know, antsy about the whole thing. And um, Well, people start getting up and leaving. That's right. They start getting up and get, walking out because they've had enough of this. Um, and then we switch back and Camille's trying... Sorry, Camilla's trying to um, plead with Buddy, her brother, to, you know, to you know he doesn't have to do this and all the rest. And... And in the confusion, Meatloaf manages to break free of his chair. And then we have this fight in the kitchen where they're getting slammed about the place. And they, they start hitting each other with frying pans. And the sound effects are absolutely perfect for <laughs> what you would imagine getting hit with a frying pan, sounds like. Um, and they keep kind of battling backwards and forwards. And unfortunately, uh, during the, the, kind of the fight, uh, Camilla gets knocked back and uh, Bud, Buddy turns around to look at her and when he does Meatloaf stabs him and then doesn't just, once again like the opening sequence, doesn't just stab him once to kill him then goes medieval on him he goes very viciously stabbing in time with this song that's playing on stage and all the rest um, and that's then, when you realise that I mean, they're, they're really, I mean he's really the ultimate villain in this he is, he, he is, he is I mean, he, he really is he is He's beyond anything because he's malicious and evil and all the rest. I mean, Buddy's like really, he, yeah, he's he's, he's a killer. traumatized. Like he's, he's exactly he's kind of like we were talking like an Argento movie or something where they see something as a kid that just really messed them up. Yeah, it gets into them at a young age and it messes them up. And he doesn't want his he doesn't want his sister to perform this because he knows what happened to his mother. He doesn't want him involved with with Meatloaf and all the rest because of what happened and all the rest. And that's why he is the way he is. Um, so we are, we kind of, we're jumping back now and we have uh, the the other singer who's been dressed up in a kabuki mask is now free. And um, she has been pushed out on stage to try and keep people in their seats. So she tries to sing and then our, our gay stagehand decides that he wants to come back on and sing with her. So they start doing some sort of weird duet thing which she doesn't want because she wants the limelight. Um, and there, she's like shoving him off the stage. <laughs> she's like, actually just get, get the fuck off the stage so I can do my song. And so she's singing it. Meanwhile, in the in the back, uh, we have Joe's trying to find Camilla. He can't find her yet. And Meatloaf is basically dragging her about the place, and uh, they end up in a room, and she ends up with the buzzsaw pressed against his like against his stomach, and Meatloaf's being incredibly menacing, but at the same time he's like kind of goading her on. You don't have the guts and all the rest. Come on, do it, do it, do it. So well, she he's eventually... also he's also trying to tell her that um you know that they can use this to you know become huge and famous, and yeah. that she's going to be a celebrity like her mom should have been. Yeah, he's, he's, he's basically going through this whole thing about, you know, basically turning her brother's tragedy uh, and death to the advantage of, you know, to because that's ultimately all he all he wants is to be back uh, in Broadway doing what he was doing before, and he doesn't care who he hurts to get there. And you He's know, really Miller's. dropped off if he's doing a summer camp. Yeah, that's it. You know, I, I love the fact, I love the fact that, you know, um, he's, he's still kind of clinging to this belief, even at this stage, that you know, all he needs is this one good show um, to get him back where he was. And uh, so Camilla tries to switch the thing on, but realises that there's no power in it. And Meatloaf is brilliant in this, because he's looking down at it, and as soon as he realises there isn't any power, he slowly lifts his head, and he is creepy and menacing as fuck. 
I mean, because he's got blood splatter on his face and he, he just stares her in the eyes. And meanwhile, she looks over and Joel appears just in time to connect the power supply and she switches this bus on and we get this glorious, glorious shower of blood that goes um, goes up over Camilla and Meatloaf's face and she kills him. Meanwhile, <laughs> on the stage... Uh, our our other singer uh, is is trying to occupy the crowd and um, through an unfortunate accident triggers off the fake blood which drops from the ceiling on her very carry styled um, and she's traumatised and Camilla walks backwards she's also covered in blood and she turns around just in time to catch the girl who faints when she sees her um, and th- this like kind of stuns the audience and of all people to give the slow clap the gardener does the guy I love that it, you, dude. <laughs> you, absolutely just this slow clap and people start coming in with a slow clap and the the kind of critic sees something in her very much actually like meatloaf as you know i was gonna say yeah it's probably like a uh, like an opportunity kind of thing yeah I, you know i can make money off this um and then we jump forward uh, i can't remember how many years it is i think it's it's one possibly, I think. I think it's one, yeah. Yeah, we jump forward and we're now we're on Broadway, um, and we're getting ready for the first presentation of the the haunting of the opera, um, and we've got Camilla who's now the big star and all the rest, and the guy comes in to speak to her and you know gives her a bit of a pep talk, uh, pep talk, and then he walks out and she's staring at the mirror, and. That's when you think something's going to happen. And I love the timing of this, actually. That's when you think something bad's going to happen and nothing bad happens. And then just when you think nothing bad's going to happen, the Kabuki mask killer smashes through the mirror and grabs her. And we think, oh, fuck, here's the twist ending. And then we realise it's a dream. Um, And I like that. I I quite like that because it doesn't... the, the, The obvious thing to do is the Kabuki mask killer comes through and grabs her and that's how the movie finishes. I love the fact that it then snaps to the fact that it's just a dream. Um, and our movie finishes there and uh, we get another badass metal song right at the very end. Did you listen to the whole song at the end? I did and I loved it because he's actually... Well, the the beginning part of the song is him actually talking to the audience. That's right, yeah. It's so like us. Yeah, he starts talking about how he enjoyed the film and all the rest. And then there's a bit halfway through it where he's basically like, he starts saying, you know, I hope you've not pirated this. You know, because pirating kills music, you know. Um, and, you know, like, he starts going to this whole thing about, like, pirate, pirated movies and all the rest. And I, I really enjoy it. And that's that's stage fright. Um, I mean, at the end of this film, looking back over it, I mean, what what is it that stands out probably the most to you about this movie? I would say to me, it's it is the fact that it's, it's telling a pretty basic slasher story but it's doing it in a way i've never seen before and that's what stood out to me was that they were doing it through music and stuff but they also had their tongue planted firmly in their cheek mm-hmm. and and it just that that was the thing is this movie it was it was almost like the perfect hybrid like they did such a good job of combining all these different styles that it, it just created this to me I, I mean i can understand you know this not being some people's cup of tea but this movie to me was just brilliant I totally agree. I think um, it it stands out. The movie stands out, and I think um, it's not just because it's a musical. I think there's a like I like I said 
before. There are a couple of things. I think, yeah, the killer is a bit obvious. And yeah, I think it maybe does take a bit too long to get to that, that kill of Artie. I think, you know, you do have to wait a good, you know, 35, 40 minutes to get to that kill after the original one. Which, um, and I can see them as being held as negatives against the movie. Um, I don't know. I, I enjoy everything that happens in between. The story keeps me going along in between that, that long period of, you know, the first kill and the second kill. And uh, yeah, the killer is obvious, but to me it was fun to see how that was going to unfold. And that's that was the point I enjoyed about this one. I I mean, I there's a reason it got a, a five for me. Um, I was obviously debating I was going to go with a 4.5. And I was thinking, no, I love this movie. And I, I watched it again just before we did this show. And that's what stuck out to me as well. I still laughed at it. I still found it entertaining. I still really like the soundtrack. Um, I still think it's visually stunning. Um, is it the best slasher film that I'll see this year? Well, who knows? What well, you know, the years. It's definitely one of the front runners, though. Just because it's doing something, it, it evokes to me the spirit of how I felt when I saw Your Next. When I when Your Next finished, I was I felt happy. If that makes sense, I just felt really overjoyed. And I felt thoroughly entertained. And this film does the same thing. It just does it in a completely different way. Um, like I say, it has a particular sense of humour that might be too juvenile for some people. But, uh, you know, then that's your negative against it. Is, you know, it, it doesn't have a particularly good sense of humour. For people to say it's a bad movie, though, I just don't get that. I think it's... Even if you don't like the music, I think the performances are good. I think the way it's shot's good. I think the kills are excellent. Um, and quite inventive as well. There's some kills in this, you know, that I've not seen in other movies. Um, that particular, the tearing off of half a foot and uh, <laughs> the 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 making someone eat a light bulb. Uh, I've never seen that done before in a movie. Uh, the, the buzzsaw to the stomach. I can't think of a movie I've seen, especially recently, where I've seen a buzzsaw to the stomach. Um so yeah, for all these sort of things, I think are positives, and I think maybe people shouldn't focus solely on the negative. And I think what they should try and do is maybe look at what Stage Fright does well, as opposed to maybe what they don't think it does well. And I think if you did that, you realise that the film's maybe not as bad as you think it is, or you maybe think it is. Um, if you don't like horror musicals, then you're not going to like this film. I mean, that's 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 a given. Uh, I think it's. Uh, you need to get your head around that. It's like you were saying, it's not a band playing there, it's people just spontane spontaneously breaking into a song. And like you said as well, Johnny, there are some people that just can't get their head around that. Well, and and that's the thing too that I you said something that stands out, uh, something I really appreciated was you talk about people breaking into song and dance and, and everybody in this movie gave it their all. I mean, this the this movie had so much talent behind it, the production values, all the actors were completely dedicated. I mean, th that's one thing that was impressive to me too is I didn't see one weak link in this movie. Like everybody seemed to be on board and knew what they were doing. Definitely. Definitely. And uh the th the thing is you said about your next about this one, the reason I like movies like this and Your Next is because and they make me feel so, you know, happy about the slasher genre is like I feel like we're finally getting those fun slasher movies again and those fun, you know, those, you know, I mean, not, I mean, of course not everything's got to be fun, but I think these ones are just, they're, they're meant for you to have a good time. And, um, you know, it's just not the same old stuff. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, um, I think these are the, 
we, we need filmmakers um, without going too off topic we need filmmakers out there that are prepared to take these sort of risks because you, if you gamble on things if you don't play it safe if you don't play it entirely by the book and you know by the rules and all the rest if you if you try and experiment and try and bring things over um i think that's where like like proper gold can happen in film um and i think stage fright like i say it's not you know it's not going to win oscars it's not the best film i've seen this year there are films which are are more geared to you know, my, my top five, I've already seen some films which are very weighty and full of performances which I think are completely captivating. That's not what Stage Fright is and the makers of that film understand that. The makers of this film are there for one reason and one reason alone and that is to entertain you. And if you're a horror fan, it's there to entertain you as a horror fan. That's why it nods to other films. That's why it gives you the practical gore you want as a horror fan. Um, and that that's, that's there... I mean, if, if, if I had an opportunity to sit down and speak to this director, if I asked him what his goal was at the start of this movie, if he told me, it, you know, it wasn't he wasn't aiming just to make a film which was entertaining, I'd call him a liar. Because I'm sure that's what he was aiming to do. And he'd done it really fucking well. Um, and it's a name now that I'll look forward to seeing where he goes from from now. Will he do another musical? If he, if he does, I'll definitely watch it. Um... Uh, you know, will he go more serious into horror? If he does that, I'll watch that as well because I think he's proved he can make an interesting movie. Uh, one that certainly balances the humour, the gore, the horror. It balances all very well. Uh, this film is is essentially a guy spinning plates on sticks and he's got many, many plates. And what this director manages to do is keep them all spinning without it, letting any of them drop. Um, and that's very easy when you're dealing with horror and comedy because the two of them are so powerful in their own right that if you focus too much on one and not on the other, you have a danger of losing both. And I think the balance in this movie is perfect. And he, he had so many hats on. I mean, he did so much in this movie's production that, I mean, that alone is, shows you his you know dedication and love for it. Because like you said, I mean, he did the music, he produced it, he, he directed it, he, he wrote it. He, the guy, I mean, he really is like a jack of all trades. He just Definitely. put his all. I, here's my, here's my thing. I think if people are into fun movies like, um, cheerleader camp and like psycho beach party movies that they're not meant to be taken hundred percent seriously. They're just meant to have fun. I think this is, mm -hmm. this is the kind of movie, you know, that, that fits in with those kind of movies. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think if you, uh, and do not, do not, to not make the mistake I first did when I heard this movie tell, this is not a remake, even though it's set in a theatre and all the rest, it is not a remake of the classic 80s Italian kind of giallo slasher movie, um, Stage Fright. It's a completely, it's a different entity. This is not someone remaking that, but putting their own spin on it. So don't expect that. This is a completely separate entity. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about this movie before we uh, take a break to wrap up the show? No, I just I just want to say like I I'm really enjoyed this movie I and mean, that's all I can say is that I, I like we both gave it high ratings I think it deserves all that and I, I recommend everybody go check it out. Definitely, definitely, and like we said earlier on, if you get a chance to check this movie, if you have checked it out um, and you have some opinions on it. Um, or you haven't checked it out and you are about to go and check it out and you get a chance to see it, um, leave us a, your 
thoughts on the movie on the Facebook page. So we're going to take a very short break just now. When we return, we are going to close out the show right after this. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful, thought-provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities? Then you've got the wrong show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And welcome back. So you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 30. So you have heard reviews of episode 7 and 8 of A Penny Dreadful. You've heard the review for 2013's Disco Path and 2014's Stage Fright. So firstly, allow me to thank my guest, uh, Johnny Krug from Kruger Nation, for coming on and chatting about these films with me. It's been a pleasure, Johnny. Thank you, man. Like, I want to come back on again. I, it's taken way too long, and I, I, I had a lot of fun, dude. Yeah, well, like I say, we've, I've got ten weeks of of best and worst horror remakes, uh, and I'm looking for as many people as possible to jump on board with that one. So um, you get pretty much... I'll send you a list of what order they'll be in, and as far as I'm concerned, you get pick of the bunch. Whatever you want to do, you can come on and do with me, and I'd, I'd be overjoyed at that. Badass. That's cool, dude. Yep, and I I think uh, one of these great uh, great podcasts where you're given two films which you actually enjoy, which is always a bonus. It, it's rare too because they're both you know brand new movies and stuff too, and that's you know it's hard to see two things that are brand new that are trying something sort of unique and like them both. Yeah, that's no, I mean it's essentially two modern slasher films, which couldn't be any more different if they tried but in their own way work because they're being different, which I think I think that's quite interesting. And hopefully hopefully people that have checked this out, if you know, if you like if you like slasher films in general, but if you're if you're looking for something horror wise, which is a little bit different than what you're getting, I think these two films are prime examples of that and uh, you should maybe try where possible to get your hands on both of these films. So um so what's what's next for, for uh for for the Krug, what you what you got coming up on your show? Well, actually, uh, my next episode, I'm taking a break from the Friday the Thirteenth series, and I'm actually uh, taking a break from slashers. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a Michael Caine double feature. I'm gonna do The Hand. Oh, excellent! And uh, The Island. Right. Well, that's a good combination. So, yeah, uh, there were a listener request back when I started the show, and occasionally he'll 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 message me like hey are you ever gonna do them and so i'm like i'm, I'm, I'm gonna finally do those for him <laughs> you're like i'm getting there i'm getting there two years on uh, <laughs> sometimes people just have to be patient i think that's what it is there's so many movies out there i mean i've got i've got like i've got like huge ideas of things that i want to do um once i finish the the horror remakes things, you know, I want to start doing specific looks at different directors, you know, I want to do something on De Palma, for sure. Um, oh, that'd be good. I'd really, really want to get, you know, because I think some is, I think, um, rightly or wrongly, I think sometimes he gets the, the, the shitty end of the stick. I think a lot of people, 
perceive his his clear homage to Hitchcock as being a rip off of Hitchcock, and I I think yeah he is clearly influenced, but I don't think there's any sort of plagiarism or maliciousness in the way he interprets Hitchcock's obviously a huge influence as he has been to many many filmmakers. Um, I think De Palma just channels it in a different direction, um, but yeah I, I want I want to do his I want to do a. Uh, a Lynch, David Lynch retrospective because I just want to, to feel like my head's been through a tumble dryer. Um, I was gonna say, yeah, that'll that'll do a number on your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm trying to I'm trying to justify reasons not not to be an owner of the Twin Peaks Blu-ray box set at the moment. And I'm starting <laughs> to find I don't have any reasons not to own it. Um which means I'm gonna have to own it at some point. So uh, oh yeah, so lo- loads of things I want to do, and obviously we've we've uh, spoken off air and private secretly about what I think the next topic for the next roundtable discussion, which I think we can pretty much say you're going to be on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, I think that's certainly that fits directly in your wheelhouse, sir. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll, I'll be looking forward to hearing you do some Michael Caine, uh, and I'll be looking forward to hearing your impression of Michael Caine as well. I don't have one yet, but I, I need to work on it. <laughs> Everyone has a Michael Caine. I, I get, know, right? I, I, I give you, I give you a wee well, and you'll have a great one. Um, so yeah, so that'll be cool. Um, and uh, you were saying earlier on you were guesting on podcast. What what, what podcast it was you were guesting on? I just did a spot on I Hate Your Face. We just talked about um, top three worst and top three best movies, but not what people would know us for liking and disliking. Oh right. So yeah, we talked about that a little bit, and we, we, it turns out that uh, James on there hates a lot of classics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we were doing the I was doing the the midnight horror show like a couple of months ago, and um, Mark who does the show with us, uh, he's a he's a bit younger than than the rest of us, but there was this really awkward moment where he said he didn't like the Goonies. And I think everyone was just like, you could have heard a pencil drop. And we were just like, how can you not like The Goonies? I mean, it's like the most inoffensive, most awesome childhood movie ever. It's like saying you don't like Ghostbusters. You know, I just don't want to live in a world where people say stuff like that. So, Dude, dude uh, James and his top three hated uh, Goonies was in there, and so was Lost Boys. What the fuck? <laughs> I know. Uh, is we, he, all, it, we all didn't believe. We're like, what? Is, is he young? Is he, is he old? No, he's older than me. Really? So he grew up in the 80s and he doesn't like Lost Boys and doesn't like the goodies? No, but I think he's got a personal grudge against Corey Feldman. Because <laughs> it seems like he doesn't like anything Corey Feldman's in. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> well, you can't <laughs> can't argue with that, but you can you, you can't. Um, uh, as as for me, uh, the next time you hear me, guys, I should be starting at number ten on uh, the the top uh, best and worst horror remakes. Uh, that'll be the start of a ten week uh, troll through through some of some of cinema's highlights. And some of cinema's shitty low points, uh, some of cinema's back alleys, um, <laughs> which which will be interesting or harrowing to to depend on how you look at that coin. Um, but yeah, so so that'll be kicking off, and obviously I'll have some bonus episodes peppered in and about them. Obviously, a new Baz v Horror, which uh, is up on the Facebook page at the moment. So all we've asked you to do is pick 
a film totally not dependent on subgenre this time a film um a horror film that is sorry uh which will traumatize him so that's all, all it is <laughs> just one that will guarantee to bring horror back some points because baz is winning at the moment and that's not cool um so yeah so you've still got another week in order to to get your names and get voting on those films so look forward to checking them out so i uh, like i like to do at the end of all my shows is send out some love to some podcasts so the folks over at the league of extraordinary podcasts um buddies like gary hill gillen roscoe's bodacious horror podcast uh devour the podcast obviously um podcast on haunted hill creepy kitsch uh, Midnight Horror Show, my, my homies over there. Uh, that's right, I'm Scottish and I use the word homies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and obviously the guys over at Horrorphilia as well. So that's Banana Laser, Skeleton Crew, uh, My Bloody Podcast and the Phantom Zone Podcast, which I believe I'm guesting on sometime soon. Uh, and obviously evil episodes. Pretty much anything Jamie Jenkins is involved with, which is pretty much most of podcasting. Um, so, uh, with that in mind, I think it's uh, it's about time to wrap this show up. So, uh, Johnny, would you like to say goodbye to our listeners, please? Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, everybody take care. Go to KrugerNation.com and keep listening to podcasts under the stairs. Thank you very much. And I can't stress enough, you need to be... If you've not checked out Johnny's podcast, you need to get over... Picks great songs, it's a great sense of humour, talks about films that you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, and um, it's, it's always a blast, it's always a blast to, to uh, listen to his show, and a blast to have him on the show as well, which is which has been a lot of fun. So, uh, for me, Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, take care of yourself, and I will speak to you all very, very soon. Bye everyone.
Die.